Hey, this is Ken Art of Wake Up Carolina. Because we're in such demand, we decided to do a podcast. Well, actually, it's like an archive of a previously broadcast show on the radio. So it's not a podcast. Well, it is presented as a podcast. So invite people to join us for whatever it is you just said they can join us for. That's right. Enjoy, and it starts now. Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, March the 21st, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Good morning. Well, I would say good morning, Kato. See, I did that without even yep. um, thinking about it. And Monday yep. morning, not really in the groove, not paying close attention um, to the uh, to the politics of the weekend. I paid a lot more attention to the coaching search, the basketball coaching search. Yeah, tell me I what's up with being, that. I, I don't know, man. I love being angry. <laughs> I'm convinced that's why I'm a Gamecock fan. I mean, if I were a fan of any other team, I'd be far less angry. So is it than anger with a touch of disappointment? Would that it describe no, the Gamecock a, fan? It, it, it's, it's anger It's now. anger. But it, it, it was disappointment for a long time. <laughs> it, it's anger now. All right, but let's, it, let's it, hear. Who you angry at? Every, What's your angry Everybody. At? Just any and everybody. And I'm beginning to like it. <laughs> I mean, you, you wake up every morning. You're liking and the majority, being angry? Well, the majority of us don't want to be mad at anybody, right? I mean, right. you want to wake up accepting the imperfections of the world of which we I all be happy. Um, live in. Sure we do. Sure we do. Uh, I don't know that I do anymore. <laughs> it's almost like I like being mad or angry. Um, so so here's the, um, I'll give you some events that happened over the weekend. And, and Gamecock fans can appreciate this. And now, let me, let me tell you what I heard okay. or, or what I read, I okay. guess, in Twitter sphere. I heard that... Uh, they said that uh, this Miller guy, as a basketball coaching candidate, was spotted at Hall's Chop House maybe Thursday night. Um, and then I saw some retractions about that. So, no, it actually wasn't him. Uh, but then also he announced he's going to return to Xavier, so he's not a candidate for the USC coaching. He, am I am I accurate so far? Or? He was at Hall's. He was at Hall's. Yeah, sure okay. he was. Right. He was there, I think, with his family or his wife in particular, you know, deciding whether or not they like Columbia. I don't know if you decide that in a day or not. Uh, and professional basketball coaches, or and I'm talking about, I mean, a college coach is still a professional basketball coach. That's their profession. Um, so he was at Halls. He's one of these. Um, he's got some baggage, but he has a history of being very successful. Um, recruiting violations, level one recruiting violations. How much did he? How much did he know about the? Um, uh, I don't want to say the payment to players, but taking care of players. Here's what you got to know about college basketball to begin with. You ready? If you're going to find a Boy Scout to coach your basketball team, you'll lose. I mean, as much as I love college football, college basketball is a more um, hotly contested sport behind the scenes. You got shoe companies and AAU and travel ball and the coaches in travel ball. Now, this would be a good day to have uh, the bad boy, sports radio, Alan Smothers on our sister station. I mean, he's told me what I know about this. I mean, he's not the only person, but he's he's well aware of uh, of how that underground economy works. So if you're going to hire a Boy Scout and believe you're going to be highly competitive and successful, um, read the book on Coach K. I mean, Coach K was kind of the godfather. He didn't kill people. He's had people kill for him. You know what I mean? He'd reached that that upper. Uh, Dean Smith created um, programs, academic programs that didn't even exist. Well, they existed, but they were there to make sure basketball players got certain grades and can stay eligible and graduate. So, I mean, what I'm saying is college athletics has always been tainted. College basketball is probably the most tainted of all. And here's the reason. My daughter asked me Saturday, why is that? I mean, why do you say college basketball 
is more tainted than college football. College football's starting lineup has 22 players, 11 on defense, 11 on offense. Basketball has five, less than 25%. So if you get one phenom, one five-star recruit, one uh, Kevin Garnett, what was from South Carolina, Malden, if I'm not mistaken, um, Dick Vitale said the college that he commits to will go to the Elite Eight that first year. He's that good. Football players can't make that much difference. A single football player, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about Deshaun Watson at Clemson, uh, Jadavion Clowney at South Carolina, Marcus Lattimore at South Carolina, uh, uh, Trevor Lawrence at Clemson. I mean, they, they make a lot of difference, but they don't, they're one of 22. Joe Burrow at Joe LSU. Burrow at LSU, but they're one of 22. But, yep. but if you recruit and land, you know, the, um, the top 10 basketball player in the country, he's one of five and you get... 20% better overnight. So, I mean, I get it. And, and you got shoe contracts. You got Nike and Under Armour and Adidas and all these other um, lowly sorts <laughs> involved in the affairs. But here's what I'm aggravated yeah, with. Yeah, why are you angry? Okay. Well, I mean, there, there you go. So, Sean Miller has proven to be successful at um, living in that swamp. He's pretty comfortable in it. He's successful at it. Um, he's got a few scars to show as a result of it. And by scars, I mean infraction violations. So what? It's college basketball. It's kind of a badge of honor in a weird way. And uh, and once again, if you're looking to win in college basketball and you think you can do it with a Boy Scout, you'll get exactly what you deserve. You better find somebody who's willing to push the envelope, willing to kind of get their hands dirty and, and deal in that muck in, of, uh, of college basketball. Here's what I'm frustrated about. You ready? Um, they just can't land the big one. I look back at the the, the run recently. Um, Tom Herman was supposed to be the football coach, and he got away. Kirby Smart, supposed to be the basketball, football coach, got away. Uh, Kevin O'Sullivan, supposed to be the baseball coach, got away. And now Sean Miller, supposed to be the basketball coach, Did he give you any, away. Any, any indication why he wouldn't have chosen to come to South Carolina so you can figure out to the me, it reason it that we matter. can never, it, never it, land the big that one? It doesn't matter. Well, there's got to be a, well, I mean, it, there's I, a reason okay, we can't land the big one. I'm on a, well, I mean, there's a common denominator here. You gonna say it? No, I'm not gonna say it because I don't want to. I mean, I'm, I'm lose my friendships here, and I, and I don't want to do that. I mean, I, I don't have any interest in going down that road. But there's a common denominator. Tom Herman is going to be the the, the football coach until he's not. Um, Kirby Smart is going to be the football coach until he's not. Kevin O'Sullivan from Florida is going to be the baseball coach until he's not. Um, and now Sean Miller is going to be the basketball coach until he's not. You are what your record says you are. I'm sure there are complications in every story. I'm sure it's unfair to say it should have been gone, you know, should have been done and, and, and happened that easy. But but you're living in a very complicated world and you make a lot of money. I mean, you're highly compensated to live in this dog-eat-dog -dog world. So when someone says, well, let me tell you the rest of the story, I don't need to know the rest of the story. You target these elite people and you don't get them. And that's historically what has been the case at USC recently. Um, and something's got to change there. I mean, it, we're, we're all big boys here, right? I mean, something's mm -hmm. got to change if that's the case. If you target these highly successful coaches in these varying sports, and for whatever reason you don't land the person you target, you are what your record says you are. And I mean, it doesn't I, it, mean it's certainly worth remembering that at one point, we landed Steve Spurrier to be well, the head coach in football, the, right? The, and, and the common denominator was not there. And I'm sorry, but I know it sounds personal, but it's not personal at all. And um, this and is I, business. It's 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 it's, very, it's big business. I mean, it's extremely uh, big business. 
And from what I'm gathering, um, and you probably read this too, they made some commitments to basketball. Um, it seems to me we're pretty committed. You got a 18,000 seat arena that, you know, you could sleep in the upper Heck deck yeah. and nobody, you could live in the upper deck. And nobody would know you're there. The upper bowl. I'm sorry. The it, upper bowl. I mean, that's, a, that's a great facility. So, so, so we find out Saturday that we're not going to get Sean Miller um, as a Gamecock fan. Clemson fans could care less. They're kind of giggly. They don't care about basketball anyway. Um, we're, we're having to care about it because we perceive ourselves to be a little more cosmopolitan than our brethren uh, in, in the upstate. So um, here's the three things that made me aggravated. You ready? Mm-hmm. We lose Sean Miller to Xavier. Not Kentucky. Not North Carolina. Not Duke. Xavier or Xavier. Is how you like to say it, and I think that is the right way. But I've heard it said Xavier several times over the too. weekend. So we lose to Xavier or Xavier. How does an SEC Power Five school with all that money floating around? And we'll hear about the SEC money. SEC money. Um, you offer more money. The guy goes to Xavier. Xavier, um, your choice. Um, and then you, you know, you lose a baseball game to Tennessee Friday. You lose a baseball game to Tennessee Saturday. You lose a baseball game to Tennessee Sunday. You didn't score a run, but you got a hit. You got one hit in the seventh mm-hmm. inning. Um, so, so the proudest program, the proudest program of the men's sports has been baseball over the, uh, what, last 15 years? I mean, the football had a good run, but nothing like the baseball program. So the baseball program is floundering. Two weeks ago, you get swept by Clemson. This week, you get swept by Tennessee. Uh, Blind Mule finds an acorn against uh, number one Texas, and you win two of three. But um, the men's sports are in trouble. If not for the mayonnaise bowl. I mean, think of that now. If not for the mayonnaise bowl, how bad would things be in the in the state capital well, when it comes to men athletics? Uh, and here's the third thing that made me really angry. You ready? The women won. You miss you now, miss why would that make you, you miss angry? on Sean Miller? You get swept by Tennessee in an SEC baseball series, <laughs> and the damn women win. And I think they should abolish women's basketball. I'm convinced of that. So the race ends yesterday, and I begin flipping through the channels, and I ended up on a women's basketball game, and I abruptly stopped because I heard screaming in the background, and I thought someone was getting mugged or robbed or stabbed or something, um, and it was, you know, a, a women's basketball game. I get in trouble here. A women's basketball game sounds like one of these cheerleading events. That There is more screaming and yelling. <laughs> in the stands and on the bench than any sport I have ever heard in my life. So I am kind of flipping through the channels after the race because I'm a good old boy and good old boys watch racing. Um, I got a buddy of mine who watched the Formula One, but he's a globalist and an elitist. Oh, yeah. So he watches um, the Formula One. So so the, the, the Sean Miller sweepstakes goes to Xavier or Xavier. Um, Tennessee sweeps the Gamecocks in the sport that they are probably um, historically been most successful at. And that, Period. I mean, there's a long season in store for Gamecock baseball fans. Vanderbilt comes to town this weekend, and I think they're number one or two or three in the country. Um, you're going to see a, a steady dose of that sort of competition, and they're just not very good. They're, they're not ready to compete uh, in prime time. And then the women win, like 49 to 33 or something like that. Um, somebody sent me a screenshot uh, Friday night. The women were up on Howard. Now, that's unfair for five women to play Howard, but the women are playing Howard, and they're up like 44-4? to four? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, anytime you have a tournament that includes a team that scores four points and a half, you don't really have a tournament. Uh, women's basketball is just, I understand Title IX and equality and all these 
other sorts of things. So there, that's why I'm angry because I spent very little time worrying about politics. And I mean, I'm sure if I'd read about the Democrats, I did read the New York Times editorial about censorship and all these other sorts oh. of things. I've tried to better understand. Um, you, uh, you just you make me laugh because the way you say, I was watching the race. And then uh, after the race, I happened to be turning across the channels and stumbled upon what was, I would never have tuned there to see what was going on with the girls' basketball game. I was just going across the channels and, and heard some noise and decided to check it out. And well, I lo thought, and behold, it was the women's basketball I, game. Well, but I noticed it. I knew it was basketball, um, but I assumed it was the men's tournament. It was not the men's tournament. It was the women's tournament. And, um, and then I heard this high-pitched scream, and I said, somebody's getting killed. I mean, something bad's happening here. has to be. Um, and it was the high pitch yelling and screaming in the stands on the bench. And the, I don't know, it's just a, um, women's basketball is a different animal as far as I'm concerned. Um, but maybe just maybe before long, women will be playing men and men will be playing women and everything will be, um, just fine. So we'll, we'll, we'll delve into that. Um, uh, Hunter Biden would, would yes. be the story we didn't touch on. We didn't very, even touch on well, it. We were too busy trying to figure out the fed. Yeah. I mean, we were trying to explain True. the fed. I do have one other thing on the fed. You ready? Because I did read, I mean, it wasn't all racing and all NASCAR and all, you know, I mean, I'm not that much a good old boy. I don't shirk my responsibilities totally. I know that I have a job to do here, and it's to um, enlighten the masses and lead the ignorant through the, the forest of ignorance. Um, and we take great pride in our responsibilities here. So there is a, um, there's a book out. It's not a book. It's, it's kind of an essay called The Wealth Effect. Remember last week when we talked about 780 economists working at the Fed, told a buddy of mine that over the weekend, he said, well, what do they do? I mean, what, 780 economists work at the Federal Reserve? Good question. What, what do they do? I said, well, they tell them to print money. I mean, that's, that's what they do. They advise the Board of Governors um, how much quantitative easing uh, makes Keynesian economists, you know, happy and satisfied. And uh, anyway, th there's, this, um, there's this rationale within the Fed called the wealth effect. You ever heard of it, Rev? The, the wealth nope. effect is a, I, I love doing this, it's, a, um, um, a, it, it's based upon a macroeconomic model um, by the Fed. Now, now, remember, 780 economists work for the Fed, 10.4 to every one of those 780 economists is a registered Democrat. We had some, uh, I don't know, some busybody, some nosy person, um, some, <laughs> some journalist dig around and find out what their voting tendencies were, where they were registered or not. And of the ones that are registered, of the, this has got 780 economists, of those who are registered under one party affiliation or the other, they're 10.4 Democrats to every one Republican. Um, that means that you've got 10.4 Keynesian economists or Keynesian economists uh, juxtaposed to every one, let's say classical economists who believe in the, um, uh, the free market. And then those who believe in government spending, quantitative easing, and that sort of thing. Well, they also have this macroeconomic model called um, the wealth effect. And out of the wealth effect, it's been widely adopted by central bankers all over the world. The USA is not the only one to have um, to have bought into this wealth effect. But it um, it, it is that by by, by inflating asset prices, um, the wealthy. Uh, which would be the asset holders. Remember last week we talked about how much more uh, the stock market is owned by the, the 1%, the 2%, the 3%. Yeah, your IRA, your 401k, your retirement account goes up a little bit in value. But BlackRock, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, 
uh, you know, some of these big hedge funds. I mean, they're the ones that do incredibly well. But the wealth effect is a macroeconomic model that inflates asset prices to make the wealthy, the asset holder, um, even wealthier. And in turn, they believe these people will spend more of what they see as free money from asset price inflation. That means driving up the price of the stock market. Um, and I guess, Rev, the premise is that this additional spending will create additional demand for goods and services through providing jobs for the masses. I mean, in essence, that is the wealth effect, that if we use quantitative easing and we drive up asset prices, the asset prices make the wealthy feel even wealthier. When they feel even wealthier, they'll spend what they have, and and that will drive up the demand and the consumption, and that will end up being good for the masses. It's kind of trickle-down economics. Um, consumption does not create wealth. It creates debt. I mean, it, it, it's bizarre to me how these federal, uh, the Board of Governors allow these economists to give them advice on macroeconomic modeling, and here's the roads uh, we go down. It's just bizarre to me. And uh, I made a pledge a couple of weeks ago, uh, a little bit like Seinfeld, the write-off. What is it? I don't know. Do you? No, but they do it all the time. So when I began saying the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve says, and somebody asked me, uh, do you understand the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve? No, do you? It's a write-off. They do it all the time, Jerry. No, do you? Um, I now I be, I'm beginning to understand it. And Larry said last week very accurately, here's what will happen. You'll begin down this road. You don't know much about it. You understand. You have somewhat of an elementary understanding. Whatever the media tells you is what you understand. You begin traveling down this road to get a better understanding of the Fed, and you get to a point you go, I get it now. I mean, I understand it now. I'm there. I mean, I'm to the point now. I get it now. I understand some of what they do. I think it's reckless and careless and and and, and lunacy 101, but I understand it. But but I, th- there's so much more to grasp and understand, and I think Larry's right. That's when you begin drifting off into, I don't know what they do anymore. You know, I don't know when you begin. I don't know what they do. And then you get to a certain point. Now I kind of sort of know what they do. Keep exploring, and you ultimately end up, I don't know what they do. They do so much. Take a break. Back in a minute. Stay on women's basketball for just a second. You ready? Jump ball, jump ball, get it, get it. Jump ball, <laughs> jump ball. Anyway, um, <laughs> Disney could be right there in the yeah, arena. We probably got some women basketball fans out there who take exception with my ridiculing of that game. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. I mean, I'm a Gamecock and I'm mad about everything. I'm mad that they didn't get Sean Miller. I'm mad they lost to Tennessee three of three in baseball. And I'm mad that they won uh, the basketball game and because we're now officially known as a women's basketball school. So UConn does not have that market monopolized. It's now UConn and the Gamecocks. Now, here's the difference. Dawn has one national championship. Gino Ariema has 11, right? Yeah. So Dawn is the face of women's basketball today, despite having less than 10% of the national championships that Gino Ariema has Um We'll see how it works out this year. Let me ask you this. Um, how many schools in America have made a commitment to women's basketball? How many schools in the SEC have made a commitment to women's basketball? As an SEC school, should be should you be insulted when you don't land your basketball coach, your baseball team gets swept, and your women's basketball team is kind of the um the, the sh- you know the, the shining object in the portfolio of uh, of athletics? 
Uh, you see where I'm heading. Yeah. I, mean, I guess at this point you just say, well, at least you know, at least we got women's well, basketball. I, okay, there's some <laughs> in the fan base that say that. I'm not one of them. I, I, I am deeply bothered by how big a commitment the University of South Carolina. It's almost like, and, and I'll get, I, I'll get, I don't really go to hate mail here, but I mean, I'll, I'll get some response to this. I would imagine um, if you're good at some of the core sports, and by that I mean the big three. I'm sorry. I mean, it's the, it's the um, only one sport at USC generates revenue. Um, and some of the schools, North Carolina, Duke, Kansas, Kentucky, uh, basketball does as well. And I would imagine um, the, the final full run at South Carolina. Here's what Clemson is doing. Clemson understands the uniqueness of that football program, and they protect it with every fiber of their being. I mean, if baseball does okay, good, great. If basketball does okay, uh, good, great. Um, but but we are a football school, and we're going to be, be known for a football school, and we're going to invest energy, time, and effort into football. That's what our that, – that butters our bread. That pays our bills. Um, South Carolina takes a very different approach to that. And um, and up until recently – well, it may still be the case. The women's basketball coach at USC made more than the, the football coach. That Who else in, in college athletics has made that kind of commitment to women's basketball? Now, now some of the Gamecock faithful – like that women basketball commitment. I don't. I think it sends a terrible signal as an SCC school. We're, we're not an Ivy League school. We're not, we're, we're not up north. We're surrounded by liberals and, uh, you know, equal uh, equality and all the uh, – no, we're, we're just not. I'm sorry, we're not. We're a, we're a southern university that still um, believes in, or at least I do. I can't speak for the fan base. I'm certainly not trying to speak for the fan base. Um and I get if you're going to play a game, be good at it. I mean, I understand if you're going to play tiddlywinks, be good at it. If you're going to play checkers or, or chess, be good at it. But, but while the commitment we've made to women's basketball and the lack of performance in the other sports is it, it, troubling to me. But if you judge a certain, a certain sport's uh, success on uh, winning games, they check that box. Okay. And they put butts in the seats of the arena, right? $3 check a that, ticket, but right. go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so but I mean that would I that, think they raised it to three fifty a ticket. Is that true? Yeah. Well, uh, but wouldn't that be a success? Yeah. I mean, once again, you, I think you the program you, still you made a money, tremendous but. commitment to be good at a sport that very few programs in America have. How many? How many programs in America have honestly made a big commitment to be good in women's basketball? The University of South Carolina, Connecticut, maybe Stanford. I mean, I think Stanford to some degree has. Uh, maybe Notre Dame. To some degree, um, that's just odd to me that they made that big a commitment to women's basketball. It's working. I mean, they're really good at women's basketball. They're now, what, not, now what came they're, they're first? They're not good at anything else. Although, though, what came first? Was it the commitment or was it the fact that they were winning? They got a great coach who could win games. There's a spotlight on the program now. And then the commitment or was the commitment first that then resulted in a very successful program? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just wonder. Yeah, I mean, Dawn's a good coach. She's a hard worker. She's uh, she's tenacious. Uh, she was a really good player. Um, she was the face of USA basketball by, you know, coaching the Olympic team. That gives you a big leg up. Uh, in other words, come play with me at South Carolina, and the next thing you know, you'll be playing for America on the Olympic team and win a gold medal. Um, I'm not arguing that they've not run the women's basketball program effectively or efficiently. Who else is trying? Who else in America is trying to be good at women's basketball? I mean, if you've made a commitment to be good at women's basketball and only three or four teams in America have made that similar commitment, you should be better than everybody else. I'm um, speaking of women's basketball. Let's get into politics here. You ready? Um, 
to protest Florida's new law um, that says kindergartners through third graders can't be uh, convinced uh, in school that homosexuality and transsexuality is normal and, uh, you know, everybody needs to consider and think about this. I'm going to talk about five and six and seven-year-olds. Um, during the NCAA tournament, the women's NCAA tournament, ESPN's Carolyn Peck and Courtney Lyle remained silent for two minutes prior to a basketball game in opposition to Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill. Um, there are things bigger than basketball. Both, I mean, both of the um, both of the announcers released a mutual statement. Um, call of the game for ESPN. ESPN's parent company is is Disney. Disney's located in Florida, so there's some political tentacles here. Um, there are bigger things than basketball. Our LGBTQIA plus, whatever the hell that what? is, LGBTQIA plus teammates at Disney ask for our solidarity and support. Now, I want to read you the line that they have trouble with. I actually got, I have the bill here from, uh, from uh, the state of Florida. The relevant passage in this Florida law reads, and I quote, classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through grade through or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. I mean, that's the law. If it has been interpreted by the liberal media and, you know, Disney and the woke and the leftist and all as don't say gay, but I want to read that again. Let me get my glasses, make sure I'm reading this uh, properly. Classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through grade three or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. Now, it may surprise you, but about 62% of likely voters in Florida or in other states than Florida say they would support a law in their state. 52% strongly support. Only 29% say would oppose a similar law in their state. Um, I went back and read, and we got some new terminology here, Rev. Um, you got, you know, uh, men... And I may get in trouble here and make somebody aggravated. Men are bigger and stronger on average. I mean, they, they are the, the bone structure of men. Um, I read this, the, um, the musculature and aerobic capacity of men. Say that again. The musculature and aerobic capacity of men, um, it's just, it makes it hard for a woman to compete. I mean, it just does. I'm not saying it in, uh, there's not a single woman that could ever compete with a single man. But, but in the case of the NCAA swimming meets where the, uh, the man has not had, he's not undergone any surgery. That means his, um, his junk is intact uh, as he graces the women's locker rooms of the NCAA, I would imagine, um, is being cheered on as a trailblazer by ESPN, Disney, and the women's basketball. There's another reason I'm aggravated about women's <laughs> basketball. They're having two minutes of silence. I don't know why two minutes of silence, one per testicle, um, <laughs> cheering them as a trailblazer. Yeah, one minute of silence. I get that. But two minutes of silence, maybe there's some symbolism here. Um, the, the, the second and third place finisher at the, at the swim meet of which Leah Thomas, who was the 465th ranked men or man when she was a dude, she's still a dude. She's just kind of transitioning from one to the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second and third place finisher 
invited the fourth place woman on the podium for a photo that showed what they think against racing against Mia Thomas. So um, Mia has not had a surgery to disconnect. I mean, everything's still intact uh, and swimming against girls and proud to have done that. And ESPN and Disney want us to celebrate during the women's basketball game, of which my Gamecocks are good at. Um, (laughs) There. Do we have a call? Ah, yes, for an early Monday morning rant. You feel better? I feel a little better. Okay. Hold on, I'm kidding. Here is uh, Cocky Mike. Hey, Mike. <laughs> it's funny. I, Dave answered the phone, and I said, you mad, bro? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you, Ken, here's the problem. Here's the real problem. You can't be honest. Yeah, you can't say things about Gamecock football in front of Gamecock diehard fans or they get they get all butthurt. I've already been suspended from the largest <laughs> Facebook group, the Gamecock Facebook group, twice because the first time was, um, well, I don't know, maybe the second time, when I said, well, that's pretty pitiful. The Gamecock men's and women's basketball team in the, in their, the second half of their SEC game lost 81 to 29 i believe is what it was men and women combined we lost 81 to 20 29 in the second half and i'm like crazy and boy people jumped all like don't you compare dawn stady to, to that brag and all this other stuff and then the other one was when um we were playing um um unc snc you know what that stands for UNC somewhere near Charlotte, and <laughs> and we had to score four runs in the ninth inning to beat them eleven to ten or something crazy like that. And I said, boy, it's going to be a long, long baseball season. But here I got a um, I got a question for you, okay. Don Staley. I'll stir I'll stir up some more, throw some more liquid poison in this pot. Name the best white girl that's ever played for Don Staley. All the championship teams she's had, national championship runs, and stuff. Name the best white white girl that's ever played for. Woo wee! You want to stir up a pot, turn that over until put a white coach in there that 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 won't bring um anything but scrubs onto her bench uh, that are of the opposite color. Mm-hmm. Go with that one now. Y'all right. have a good day. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Somebody on the phone. Let's yep. go there. Here's Verd in Marlboro County. Hey, Verd. Good morning. How y'all doing? Hey, Verd. I got the answer, Ken. I think the trans men, I think they ought to form their own league, compete, compete against each other on the same playing field, and then just give everybody a participation trophy. That's, that's kind of interesting. That, that's kind of interesting. Have a trans league. We got men, and we got women, and we got those who are uncertain, and let those compete against one another. And think about kid, they'll be trailblazers. They'll be started their own leagues, both of them. Yeah, there you go. I, I'm, I'm good with that. Thank you, Verd. Appreciate the call. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Got a men's league and a women's league. Why not a trans league for those who are confused and trying to make a better um, way forward? So today during the, um, I want to read this quote. This is uh, Disney. Today during the NCAA women's basketball tournament. ESPN's Carolyn Peck and Courtney Lyle remain silent for two minutes. That's odd to me. Uh, not a moment of silence. Two minutes. Two, there, two moments. Got, there, there's got to be some symbolism in here, Rev. I'm sorry. It's a little bit colorful. 
And it's a little bit off the, you know, off the, but it's a little bit edgy. Edgy would be a better word here. But why two minutes to the don't say gay bill? 843-661-0937. There are things bigger than basketball. I'm sure there are. Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. I'm trying to be flippant dismissive, but there's a serious conversation to be had about the unserious nature of this debate. I've got some interesting information we'll delve into in the next hour about masculinity. And, you know, there's a lot of research out now, leftist-driven research that says traditional masculinity has been marked, tainted, stained by um, dominance and aggression. I, for one, believe uh, when I think of masculinity, I think of risk-taking. I think of, uh, I don't know, Rev, the primacy of work, um, the desire to win. I don't think of aggression and dominance. I think of competitiveness and and a lot of other things. Um, There is a suicide epidemic in America today that is largely affecting or, or very, very, very disproportional. Probably could have added another very in there. Very, 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 very disproportional uh, to young men. And the young men struggle of, of I don't know, uh, there's, there's a natural, I mean, there's something called testosterone that is the driver of masculinity. And the world is trying to tell young men that it's not okay to be masculine. These natural tendencies and natural reactions and natural reflections or reflexes we have um, are bad because it um, it exudes dominance or aggression and on the whole or on the average is harmful to society. Um, and I, I just don't buy into that at all. In fact, I think um, risk taking and and the primacy of work and the desire to win are essential in. Uh, any highly competitive society, society, I think masculinity is a big part of that. So when I joke around and and say these things in uh, humorous fashion, that there's a very serious part of this, and we've tried our, our, our dead-level best to stamp out masculinity in this modern woke society, and young men have testosterone, and they're being told to control that dominance, control that aggression, instead of celebrating risk-taking and the primacy of work and the desire to win and the, and the pursuit of excellence. And, and, and young men, I think, are being terribly confused by these forces that don't have their best interest at heart. Let's go to the phone. Here's Boudreaux in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hey, Boudreaux. Good morning, gentlemen. I was watching the game when they did that whole silence for the uh, the bill that was being voted on, whatever. And I I, I muted my TV because I didn't want to hear them not say nothing. Okay, that was the only way I knew to protest that bull crap. And uh, but my daughter got married Saturday, and uh, and I, while we were doing the father daughter dance, now her her new husband's kind of soft. Not I don't mean this in a bad way. He's soft spoken. He's just a he's a mild mannered young man, and my daughter is nothing mild about her. She's the loudest person in the room. She's not a mean girl. She just, she just very uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, 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 dramatic and not a bad way. Just she's she when she walks in the room, that there's there there's the room right there. And while we were doing the father daughter dance, I said, does does uh does uh, he have any idea what he's in for? And she said. Yeah, I think so. She said, but Daddy, he's a man, and I'm going to make sure he feels like a man. And uh, and that meant a lot to me. She ain't bought into the whole, well, by God, I'll run this house, you know. And uh, he anyway, so that, that all kind of tied together a little bit about the masculinity. Because like I said, he, my son-in-law, just a soft-spoken, gentle-natured fella. 
and I'm glad I raised my daughter to believe that uh, that she needs to still be a wife. And uh, now she she pretty misplaced. She got to. I swear. I swear she will. But anyway, yeah, I muted my TV, Ken, because I thought if they ain't gonna say nothing, I ain't gonna listen to them not say nothing. And I don't know if that was a proper protest to their bull crap, but it's all I knew to do, boss. Made you feel better. Thank you, Boudreaux. Congratulations on getting your, uh, as we say the country, getting your, dare, your daughter married off there. Uh, 843-661-0937. I do want to delve into this. Uh, Pew Research has done a lot of uh, uh, research gathering, polling, um, analysis of the uh, of the information. And, and once again, you may believe, I mean, there, there are many out there listening to my voice that may believe that masculinity is bad because it suggest uh dominance and aggression that on average is harmful to a society um i just don't buy that and i think when you look at men trying to fit into the world today uh that they're fighting against these natural tendencies they have that the i don't know the woke world is saying are bad 843-661-0937 takes mondays to make fridays we'll be back in just a second 843-661-0937. So between the ages of 10 and 14, stick with me, Rev, for a second. Between the ages of 10 and 14, boys commit suicide at almost twice the rate of girls. Between 15 and 19, boys commit suicide at four times the rate of girls. And between 20 and 24, the rate of male suicide is between five and six times that of females. Um, young men without a college degree are far more likely to commit suicide. Pew Research did extensive um, data gathering in relation to this. Um, 60% of all college enrollees are now females. And, and I could go on and on about skilled labor and unskilled labor and electricians and plumbers and mill workers and construction workers and all these other sorts of things. But I think it really boils down. This is something I won't blame higher ed for. I mean, I don't think higher education is the driver of this. The majority of problems here, I think, are this woke culture that wants to demonize masculinity when masculinity is a natural attribute uh, of males. I mean, it's just the way we're wired, and and I think it's to be celebrated. I think it's to be um, relished, and, and I think the the society that tries to demonize, um, and I'm talking about woke um, society that celebrates transgenderism and gender fluidity. I mean, imagine a culture that celebrates transsexuality but demonizes masculinity. I mean, that's the culture we're living in. I mean, that, that's America today. That's where um, that when, when Obama talked about the transformation of America, those are the sorts of things he had in mind. How can we end up in a place one day where we celebrate, you know, transsexuality and, and we, we demonize masculinity? That's where we are. I mean, that's where a lot of these opinion leaders and, and woke thought leaders have us, um, and they've convinced a lot of Americans that, you know, um, the dominance and aggression that masculinity exude are harmful and dangerous to society as a whole when I believe, and I think there's still some out there that believe what I do, that masculinity is a celebration of risk-taking, and, and the primacy of work and the desire to win and the, the pursuit of doing better today than you did yesterday. But I, I'm beginning to believe, and maybe this is a bit provocative or too provocative, I'm beginning to believe there are fewer and fewer and fewer of me and more and more and more of those who say masculinity bad, transsexuality good, 
Um, and I think a lot of this is happening on the college campuses, but I think this is much bigger. I mean, I think this is the bureaucracies and institutions that we are it's forced to adhere to. or indoctrination. Sure. Indoctrination. But, right. it, but it's happening in Florida, Rev. It's happening between kindergarten and the third grade. I know. I mean, imagine that. And then we've got a couple of minutes of silence to celebrate um, Disney taking on the government of Florida. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning, Breeze. Hey, what's up, guys? I'm hey. a little bit winded just because I've been out behind the gym throwing my battle axe into the tree in the backyard. But anyway, let me catch my breath. You know, I'll tell you, um, I said yesterday, well, my wife did. She goes, what makes Trump think they'll let him win? You know? And I, I think I wouldn't be surprised if they killed him if it looked like he was going to win. Now, getting on to this thing with these dictators, let's look at China. Let's look at the Middle East. Let's look at Russia. You made the point that Putin is only really dangerous when he's got money, right? He's well, much more. I mean, I think he's dangerous at all times, but he's much more dangerous when, when oil is it expensive. Takes, it, yeah, it takes money to raise wars. You sure. Know, you're, you're, you're right. So, you know, he can only do so much damage when he's broke. And you know, the same thing with his, well, who fund, what funds Middle Eastern terrorism? Oil money. What, yeah, all, all, of, all of this, so what makes China to where all of a sudden they are, they are threatening us militarily? Well, we, we paid them. We, we, we're, we created all of these things. So then you get the Ukrainian president makes his speech that everybody applauded, and I don't blame him, but basically what he was saying is he wanted all of us to commit enough resources. So of all of, the, all of Europe and America, let's say they keep sending in their equipment, and I don't know what the cutoff point is, or they do send in troops. Well, then, you know, Putin, that gives him just the excuse he needs to you know, expand the war. But the one way that you can stop all of this stuff, you can stop Iran, you can stop, that's how they stop North Korea. They can't really do it so much because they ain't got no money. You stop the daggone income. You got this sort of, I mean, with China, that might have to be more gradual, but we get away where we're, uh, we're producing more stuff here, even if it costs, I actually could tolerate a higher cost like you said last week, for a T-shirt here made in America. And that's where I buy my stuff now. I search for companies that make their stuff here, of American products. But the same thing goes through, you know, of course, we have the oil. So why aren't they doing it? Why? And again, it goes back to its own purpose. We can stop all of this stuff. We just bankrupt Putin. But you bankrupt Putin without, <clears throat> excuse me, without bankrupting ourselves. See, they're bankrupting Putin. And at the same time, they're bankrupting us. And any fool can see that. So, again, they're doing it on purpose. Now, you know, when you start talking about this whole thing with the swimmer, if you not found it odd that there hasn't been a single woman that said, you know, I'm kind of feeling like a man today. I think I'm going to compete against the men in the 500-meter daggone butterfly. Have you seen that? Have you seen the one girl that says, you know, I feel like a man today. I'm going to compete against the men in the 100-meter dash. You haven't seen that either, have you? And you won't see it. So that tells you right there, it got a damn thing to do about transgender this, transgender that. It never does have anything to do with that. It's just another way to destroy American institutions. And again, when you start talking about masculinity, what do you want if you are a government? It's not on purpose. What do you want? Do you really want a bunch of, a, a bunch of men or do you want a bunch of sheep? You want the 
men to be as you ought to meet men to be as emasculated as possible, so they'll do what the hell they're told. But see, so what they do is, is they say a man acting masculine is a big bully. No, a masculine man is what protects you from the big bully. So you know they they twist it all around and again do it on purpose. They don't want people like us. What they're hoping right now is once all of us die away, they hope, and I said this before, they're hoping they've emasculated my boys and your boys and everybody else's boys to the point to where they do what the hell they're told and be good sheep, go to work for go to work, pay their money to the government, do what the government says, wear your mask, do whatever we tell you to do, and we tell you we'll do this, yeah, and that's that's what that's what they're doing, and it's not incompetence again. But so, you know, you got to say just our job, your job, my job, and you probably already accomplished that, but it's my job to raise my young boys to be masculine, to protect people from the bullies out there. And the bullies can be anything from the federal government or to the bad guy. You know, there's John Wayne masculine, and then there's the then there's the bad guy that John Wayne was always fighting against. That's what you need to have masculine men for to fight the bad guys out there. You know, and if you don't have any masculine men to fight the bad guys, well, then the bad guys take over, right? Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. That's kind of, um, I mean, that that's said a little bit differently, but that's exactly what I'm saying. Um, if, if, if modern woke society basically categorizes masculinity as a, um, a sign of dominance and aggression and on the whole, on average, that is harmful to a society yeah, I mean, I think it transforms society. I mean, if we, if we don't celebrate masculinity any longer and and we we abnormalize risk-taking and the primacy of work and the desire to win and, and the pursuit of uh, competition, you know, uh, the pursuit of competition, pursuit it would be competition, um, Rev and I compete, and the masculinity at some point in time, the testosterone at some point in time becomes a key factor in that competition. Um yeah, I mean, and, and I, you know, I could really freak out and go back to Obama, the Obama doctrine and why this was, look, guys, we have to admit at some point in time how highly effective Barack Obama was as an American president. I mean, you reluctantly agree to that. I reluctantly like to, to accept that. But Barack Obama was a highly, highly, highly effective American president. He didn't completely transform America but he put it well on its way. And and it may be in some weird way, uh, Rev, the the resentment toward Trump was he did embody some of that, um, I think, you know, celebrated masculinity and toxic masculinity. I think there are things about Trump that, that are dominant and aggressive. I'm not bothered by it because I'm in business and I've dealt with those sorts of people all my life. I could turn into one of those at the drop of a dime uh, when I need to. I mean, I, I don't have any problem at all. Be, being a man who becomes dominant and aggressive when, when, when it's time to be dominant and aggressive. But I think the majority of Trump, Trump embodied everything masculinity was celebrated for. Risk-taking, hard work, the desire to win, at times being aggressive, at times being dominant, and maybe just maybe, you know, we've always wondered, what are, why are they so opposed to Trump? I mean, his policies are not outlandish, are they? I mean, he, you wouldn't call him a um, drowned government in a bathtub conservative. I mean, I doubt he's ever been on the National Review's website. I doubt he's ever read the Weekly Standard. But he embodies this masculinity 
that a lot of woke culture in our nation um, finds not not just abnormal, but but dangerous. Let's go to the phone. We have Rujan in Darlington. Hey, Rujan. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Hey, uh, hey, guys. Uh, I want to. I hate to sound like a like a like a broken record or a scratch record, but I keep coming back to this thing. And the more the more uh, the more I study on it, the more I'm 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 convinced of it. You know, these folks. Uh, when you, if you look at the black community, you'll see how they just absolutely decimated it by uh, destroying the family, uh, by doing what you're what you're talking about right now. Uh, instead of making it a patriarchal society, uh, they made it into a matriarchal society. Uh, what what these folks are doing is and how, how do you how do you how do you get mental illness um, by calling something that is something different? Um, the thing that I cannot change is my skin color. The thing that I cannot change, no matter how hard I think I'm God and can do it, I can't change my gender. And if I were to keep saying that, keep saying it, keep saying it, it doesn't make it any difference. But what happens is once you start believing it, it's abnormal. And that changes one's mindset. That that changes your whole psyche. That puts you in a whole different mental state. And that's where we're at now. That's what these folks are trying to do. And, and, and I'll say it on, on a spiritual level, that's an abomination. That goes against, goes totally against what God has said. And that's, that's why I say, if you look at the African-American community, in 1957, close to 80% of all unborn, all born children, black children, were born to two-parent monogamous uh, married families. Now that's 25%. And it's all because of what they've done. And now if you if you look at the black community and you see what's happening in the white community and greater society, you'll see this is what they're trying to do. And if anybody comes out and says anything different, they want to label you. They want to call you a racist. They want to call you a homophobe. They want to call you any derogatory term that they can get to. And I say, grab a cup of cojones. I said on this show, somebody call you a racist, sue the hell out of them. And I, just, just stop being uh, complacent. Just stop being complicit and don't go along with it. They're only 1% of the population and we're acting like it's the majority. No, no, stop it, man. Just stop it. It's, it's frustrating to me as a black man that's been saying this for the past 40 years. And and now I'm seeing some people coming around, but this has got to stop. Plain and simple, it's got to stop. Thank you, Rujan. Appreciate that. Let me, somebody explain this to me. I mean, I went through the numbers and these are, are fairly documented numbers. Um, from Pew Research, I mean, why are boys committing suicide uh, at twice the rate of girls at the age 14 or 10 to 14, and then it increases um, 15 to 19 four times, 20 to 24, um, five and six times? I mean, why is that? I mean, why are boys more inclined? Why are young men more inclined to kill themselves than young women? I mean, let's stew on that for a second. I don't. I mean, I'm not. Uh, I'm not trained. I'm not psychologically trained. Um, I'm not medically trained. I don't have any idea. Um, does puberty and adolescence and, and grow, I mean, all of these other sorts of things. I mean, you got a testosterone and estrogen. I mean, I understand all of that, but, but I do believe that there are, we live in a world that makes it very, very complicated to exert some of these natural influences that men have, you know, you know, most, the, the most interested opinions I'd have women, 
I mean, when women think of masculinity, and I know the majority of our listeners are men, we get ratings and we know uh, that the, the higher percentage of our listenership is men, but we have a lot of women that listen to this show. Um, I'd love to know what women in our listening audience thought of when I say the word masculinity. Do you think dominance and aggression and it's dangerous or harmful to society, or do you think risk-taking and hard work or the primacy of work and the desire to win and provide for uh, the family? Uh, because society's told us it's not to be celebrated. Combine that, and I think there's a combination here, Rev. Combine that reality, not celebrating uh, masculinity, but yes to transsexuality and transgenderism. I mean, that's bizarre to me anyway, but that's where we are as America. Combine that with um, the deindustrialization and then the trades, you know, some of these um, sweat of the brow. Remember the poster in the guidance counselor's office? We've, uh, we've uh, referred to that many, many, many times on this show. Work smart, not hard. I mean, isn't hard work somewhat of a trait and characteristic of masculinity? I mean, from a man's perspective, I mean, men providing for their family, I mean, it, it's very, it's not just primal, it's essential. I mean, it, it, is, it, is, it is elemental to a man's life um, or, or historically has been, maybe um, not the case now, but I think we live in a very weird place for, for a man who was taught conditioned. I mean, I grew up in a very masculine world. You know, I said on the, uh, over the airwaves, Trump's language doesn't bother me a bit in the world. His demeanor, his bombast, his narcissism, his ego, because I've lived in the world of business. And that's fairly commonplace in that world. Um, but it's not in the woke world. It's not in the institutional world, the bureaucracy world. That, that's a different animal. Um, mask wearing. I mean, if we were truly a masculine society, you know what a lot of men would have done? Told them to shove that mask up there, you know what? But most men, because once again, they've been convinced that that natural tendency to be masculine shows a, an improper degree of dominance and aggression, and, and I got to fit in. I mean, I got to be culturally accepted and societally accepted, and because of that, I'll put this mask on, but there's something inside of you. There's something burning in your belly if you're a man that says hell no to that mask and hell no to that vaccine mandate. And very, well, I mean, I think Breeze is right. Fewer and fewer and fewer men are willing to act on that impulse for fear of um, some sort of retribution, you know, job loss, livelihoods at risk. I mean, there, this is a serious game out there uh, when you travel down that road. Let's go to the phone. Troublemaking Tim is next. Hey, Tim. Hey, guys. Um, I was just going to add to what Rajan said as well, that uh, you look at the fatherless homes. I think that that's the biggest problem, Ken. Um you take a look at what's happened, you know, the baby boomers need to probably look in the mirror. I think males in general need to look in the mirror. Um, I, I don't think it's aggression that, that, we, that makes a man. I think self-control is. I think if you take a look, you, you know, the impulse control that you were just, impulse that you were just talking about, how many men do you see stay with, with uh, their families and stay with their children? And I think if you take a look at that, one of the hardest things you'll do in life is uh, a being married and b raising raising children, and men are losing masculinity because they're not willing to stand up and do some of that stuff. The hard work there. I think I'd also take a look. If you look at the lawmakers passing all the bills. The majority of them are what men. So I think men need to take a look in the mirror 
because probably if you look right now, women are a lot tougher than men in this world. I'll take it off the air. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate that. Yeah, that's why I'd love to know what women think. I mean, men are giving their own subjective opinions on masculinity. And I do think Tim's onto something there. The most masculine thing a man can do is control himself. I mean, in certain situations when the man knows he has a distinct physical advantage, the most masculine thing you can do is control that impulse. We're not animals. You know, it's not survival of the fittest. I mean, to some degree it is, but we're not not in the the animal's food chain. Uh, Let's take a break. I want to stay there. Back in just a couple of minutes. You know, the liberal left will argue that there's a necessary detoxification of masculinity. Um, the only way to get to a um, to gender equality is to address some of this toxic masculinity. And there's some, I mean, I've read articles in the Atlantic magazine about the detoxification of masculinity. You, you know, the, 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 the most recent accomplishment of masculinity in the world is the election of Donald Trump. I mean, that, you know, that, that is kind of the, um, when the liberals and the transgender celebrists and, and, and those who really, you know, get caught up in the, um, this newfangled way that we, uh, I don't know, we relate to gender and, and a man and a woman in their just natural state. Just the fact state. that they attach the word toxic to the word masculinity. Well, but, but, but once again, it, it's not just that. There is a, yeah, the, the toxic and the, detox, the detoxification of, uh, of masculinity. Um, and it's really, this goes back to, um, to, the, to the most dangerous group of people in America. This is not women-driven. I mean, when you look at the polls, women in America don't believe we have a problem with masculinity. You know who do? The liberal, affluent, college-educated Northeasterner. Oh, the same That's the majority of people who believe that something has to be done about masculinity, and it's probably about 50-50 man and woman. But but this is not some feminine movement um, that that has led us to believe that we must detoxify, you know, the, uh, the masculinity in America because they may vote for Donald Trump again. You know how these men are. Let's go to the phone. <laughs> Here's Jane and Mullins. Good morning, Jane. Good morning. Good morning, ma'am. How are you? I am fine. I appreciate your show. I watch, listen to it every morning. Thank you very much. So you say, you say what about masculinity? Well, I think a man that is masculine is a thinking man. He's a man that appreciates his position, and he also appreciates the females that are in his life. He respects them. I think that, yeah, thank you. Pre- well, I mean, th- thank you. Appreciate the call. I think, I mean, I'm thinking back to my dad. I mean, my dad, you've heard me tell stories. I mean, my dad killed a snake with his bare hands. You know what I mean? I mean, he would fight a bull. I mean, that's just the nature of uh, the way I was raised. But, but my father respected people. He ingrained in me, you know, not, not, not an option. I mean, you're going to respect other people. But, but he, I don't know, Rev, he implanted this belief in me that I'm a man and, and men have masculine responsibilities. It's your job to provide. It's your job to protect. It's your job to defend. It's your job to be aggressive when necessary. It's your job to be dominant when necessary. It's your job to be fair and impartial. It's your job to pursue excellence. It's your job to win the competitions as they come along. And I just wonder how many kids are, are getting that. And I think Rujan and I think others have, have mentioned, you know, the breakdown of the family. Tim was talking about that a second ago. How many kids are going to school this morning in Florence County, Sumter County, and Orangeburg County schools who 
who th- their, their dominant influence in their lives will be a woman. I mean, I've done the percentages before. I've kind of correlated some of the national stats, some of the state stats. It, it would blow your mind how many kids woke up this morning with no man in their life. Young, young boys wake up in the morning on their way to school, have spent a weekend with no masculine presence in their life. And the only influences they get are, by and large, public education. And public education has become um, complicit to this detoxification of masculinity. And, and these these young boys have these natural impulses that are driven by what? The way God made them. I mean, I think God made young boys to be understanding and sympathetic toward masculinity at certain times. And, and I, don't, I don't perceive masculinity to be dominant and aggressive until when until it's time to be dominant and aggressive let's go to the phone here's larry in the pd good morning larry good morning i do i think i'll take a little exception you said that you don't think that feminism is what drove this i I think it did i think the goal of feminism was never to make first-rate women it was always to make second-rate men um, on both sides of the gender spectrum because you've got a bunch of women who have to be daddies now, and they're doing a second-rate job at it. I hate to say it, but they are. A mama can't be a mama and a daddy. And you've got a bunch of daddies who won't stand up and do what they're supposed to do, and they've become second-rate men. So on both sides of the gender spectrum, what we've got is a bunch of second-rate men. And what I think is so funny is the things that feminism identify with toxic masculinity Anybody who considers themselves a self-respecting man wouldn't have anything to do with sexual assault and sexual um, uh, uh, harassment in the workplace and 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 misogyny and and mass, you know being being um, uh, a chauvinist. That's not what men do. I never saw a man that was worthy of respect behave that way, and I never saw society respect that man. But somehow or another, the feminists decided that that was what all men were trying to become, and that it was only societal pressure that kept us from being that way, a bunch of knuckle-dragging Neanderthals. But then, you know, they don't want to talk about, you know, the Renaissance man. You know, we don't study that anymore. You know, the man who could farm, garden, fix his car, quote poetry, read Shakespeare, where's he at? Why don't we lift him up again? I mean, no, that that's me and you, Larry. You know where that is. That, that, that's you and I. I mean, that, that's, we're talking about ourselves now. I am a little bit. <laughs> and I'll tell you this. I had to move a young lady over the weekend, and a bunch of people showed up from the church, and I didn't see one woman grab the other end of a refrigerator, a washing machine, or a freezer. There you go. Larry, so I want to ask you this. around a little while longer. I want to ask you this. Okay, um, let's assume that your ride in feminism was the driver of this. What is, what is man, and I'm talking about man literally, not figuratively here, what is man's responsibility in confronting feminism? I think that we just have to start saying you are wrong. That's all. We don't want to say that. We don't want to tell the woman on ESPN when she says a moment of silence, we, we should say, I'm sorry, ma'am, you're wrong. That doesn't deserve a moment of our silence. That doesn't deserve our reverence. We should celebrate that. How about we have a moment of silence for the... of the people you're trying to celebrate that murder themselves, how about we go, you want to teach something in school? How about we get people post-sex change who are so ridiculously depressed and and say, hey, would you do it all over again if you had the chance? And hear them say, never, never. I'm miserable. This is a horrible lifestyle. I wish somebody would have taught me out of it. 
because there's plenty of those people out there. They just cannot get a space uh, on stage. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate it, my man. Happy Monday morning to the Renaissance man. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, I, I mean, wouldn't you agree, Rev, that that is where, I mean, it, let, let's talk amongst men here for a second. Uh, we had a woman call it a second ago. I mean, I, I mean, I, I can't speak for the masses. I can speak for me personally. I do believe that manhood requires balance. And I think Larry touched on that a second ago. I am always looking for that sweet spot. Um, that's a loud analogy. We're talking about masculinity here. <laughs> right. I'm always looking for the perfect split, perfect space that, that balances, you know, um, thoughtfulness, kindness, decency, um, you know, in the weirdest word imaginable to use it, progressiveness to, to accept that, you know, the, the world is changing at all times and I need to understand this changing world, um, well-read, well-rounded, um, enlightened, understanding, sympathetic. But I don't think you give up the virtue of masculinity when you read poetry or, or, or you try to understand some of the intellectualism that, that is a part of society. I don't think you're giving up any of your, of your masculinity. I think that is the most celebrated man imaginable. I think a man that knows Shakespeare and watches a NASCAR race while he's reading Shakespeare I mean, I think that is the, um, I mean, I think we need more men like that. I think we need more men that, that understand that, that they are responsible for understanding that the complexities of the world around them, they read, they study, they understand, um, they're in pursuit of, but they also hold on to this very dominant force in their life. And that is the provider, um, the care, the caretaker, the, uh, you know, the best employee in the business. I think the, the pride, I mean, pride, and I, I understand pride the way the Bible talks about pride. I certainly accept that. But but having pride about being on time every day to your job, having pride about being able to provide, provide for your family. I mean, I think, I think being a man is intended to be very complex. And I think if man is in pursuit of living a full and wholesome life, he accepts these complexities. And I think Larry touched on this. It isn't an either or. I mean, you don't have to be, you know, an MMA fighter or Thomas Jefferson. You can be a little bit of Jefferson and a little bit of an MMA fighter. And I don't think, I mean, I think that's where man finds his most meaning. I mean, and I look at some of these stats about, I think the reason young men are killing themselves is they can't find a place to land. I mean, they, they have these natural impulses and compulses, and out of that comes uh, a semi-world view. And, and, and where they believe uh, is, the, is the right place to land is... is I don't know, bizarre, bizarre institutions and forces have complicated uh, some of that space. Let's go to the phone. John in Florence County. Hello, John. Good morning, fellas. Good morning. Uh, Ken, don't forget, this is destruction of the family. All this toxicity and all this stuff, this is the destruction of the family, which I'll go back to again. I've said this to you before, and I don't think you – uh, well, I, I, I'm sure you understood me, but I mentioned uh, Mark Levin's book, and you used the word uh, psychotic and conspiracy theory. But it's the uh, it's the Karl Marx manifesto. I think people are losing sight of that, and uh, it's important to remember. But expound upon that book. a little bit. I mean, when you talk about addressing the I mean, use Marxism. Give, give me an example of Marxism's. Assault on family values. Well, you know, you take away religion, you take away people's faith, and they're 
more susceptible to be swayed to whatever they're trying to push on you. It's the same thing about the family. The family that prays together stays together. Interesting. Thank you for the call. Appreciate your time. I certainly didn't mean to dismiss if I said something about um, when, when the caller previously mentioned Levin. I remember that. And maybe I was a bit too dismissive, and I apologize for that. Um, Levin's a smart guy. I mean, he has oh, this yeah. showman, uh, showmanship about him at times over the airways, but I've never disputed that Levin is not a smart guy. Um, I think it was Howard Schultz's chief of staff, George Schultz. If I'm not mistaken, I mean, he's got a political history of having a pretty important job in our nation's capital, and you don't get that job by being psychotic. It's only presidents <laughs> that are allowed to be psychotic and <laughs> And get elected, and members of Congress, for that matter. Uh, but but this is an interesting conversation um, that is kind of self perpetuating uh, itself. Let's go to the phone. Linda in Sumter, listening to WDXY. Hi, Linda. Hey, good morning. Happy to hear y'all's voice. Uh, as you say, on Friday we all disappear. Yes, ma'am. Yes, but it has been funny listening to this conversation because I've had an argument with a group of women about. You are not the man. Children need a father. Well, I the mama and the daddy. No, you're not. Because women see things differently than men do. And I still have three boys. My husband was a man's man. He didn't believe in a whole lot of feminine things. And we learned to, I learned to know what he would do and what he would do. Yes, he provided. And I have a house today because he provided it for me. My older children are great men because he was there for them to teach them how to be a man. And you can be both. And I think women have come to this position that I can do it all, so I don't need you. I don't need your opinion. And, yes, I see some husbands won't open their mouth. Because they don't want to upset their wife or their girlfriend because that may lead to trouble down the line where that, as even my son said to me one time, Mom, I ain't got nothing to say because you know that fool might call the police on me. So I'm not saying nothing. Whatever the children do, that's fine with me. I'm not getting involved. And that's a sad state of affairs when you're in a marriage or a relationship and you're afraid to be who you are, to be a man, to teach a man how to be a man. But uh, y'all have a great day. Talk to you later in the week. Thank you very much. Appreciate the call, 843-661-0937. We've got a call. I'd love to have another. Got to take a break right now. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. A couple of callers held on during the break. Let's go there. Richard in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Say, Richard. Hey, how you doing? Um, yeah, I was just listening to your conversation on what you're talking about with the women's, women's, um, the feminists and stuff like that. But um, a lot of the issues we have with that really boils back down to and a lot of people don't want to hear. But if you go back to Genesis three twenty two, um, I'm sorry, Genesis three sixteen, it tells you exactly why the women are wanting to be in control. It always goes back to the garden. And then if you look at Romans one, it tells you why our country is where we're at and basically why the world's where they're at because they're denying the truth. And until we face the truth, we're going to continue to go down this rabbit hole, and we're going to, we are going to continue to destroy the family until it comes to a head. 
Thank you, Richard. Appreciate that. You know, th- there's a suggestion out there in um in woke land that masculinity is this cultural creation. Um, that that's not even close to reality. Yogi Berra famously said, "You can see a lot by watching." <laughs> well, I mean, you, you know, the Yogi isms that have become famous or become famous over the years. You can see a lot by watching. Um, when you watch boys play at an early age and girls play at an early age, you understand that this behavior is rooted in biology. It's not some cultural creation or concoction. Um, and I don't think Yogi meant to talk about transgenderism or gender fluidity <laughs> when he said you can see a lot by watching, but I think he nailed it. You can see a lot by watching so little boys and little girls. There's something biological there. There's something natural there. There's something um, God ordained there. It's not some cultural creation or concoction. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Hey, Mike. Hey, uh, I, I think uh, the, the, it's a basic thing. I think it's a uh, Probably, if you you can go back to the Bible, I know that's not in vogue these days, but there's a lot of truth in that book. But um, we've done away with religion in school, and it started when I was uh, in school, and it's gotten much, much worse. The the whole thing about this, uh, when you do away with religion, there's a natural desire for people to uh, want to... uh, worship something and then we've got this woke religion which is just filled with uh, religious beliefs and foolish religious beliefs they're not truth like renewable resources there are no renewable resources we got the sun up there and it's shining but it's not renewable it has a lifespan it's, it's billions of years but it has a lifespan and it's also liable to blow up in certain places over time and uh, destroy us with and i don't think anybody can put a thermostat on that thing not uh today or not even in the time of star trek they had trouble doing that and these and the other thing is gun violence there is no such thing as gun violence there's people violence and there's uh and there and there's gang violence, but I've never seen a gun jump up and shoot somebody just that just laying there on the table or in the gun rack, jump out of the gun rack and start shooting people. It it's uh people don't want to take responsibility, they wanna believe in magic and the whole situation with this this green religion is just a scam because uh if you got, if you grow corn to make ethanol, you're going to use fertilizer and you're going to use a bunch of fuel because let me tell you, an acre is established because it that's what a team of of oxen and an old time medieval plow that's what they could plow in that in a day. Well, we improved that. Got a horse, a horse with a horse and a, a collar. You can uh, plow maybe four, five, six, seven acres a day. It'll wear you out, but you could do it. And uh, the and uh, the the situation has not changed. These are basic physical things. Now, if you got a tractor with a big game a gang of discs on the back of it, you can go. You can start talking about tens of acres a day, or even a hundred acres a day, when one of them huge Midwestern plows. But uh, uh, try to do that. Try to do that with solar power, and I don't think it's going to happen. And 
the whole thing about this this renewable resource is just absolutely goofy on the face of it. It's as much as trying to wear these masks to keep uh, the to keep the viruses away. The the viruses go through those cloth masks like they were a, a chain link fence. Mike, we got to take a break. Hard break. Top of the hour. Thank you for your call. Be back. In just a minute. Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven takes Mondays to make Fridays bright. Friday morning, early Friday morning, nice weather on the way this week, if I'm not mistaken. I think today's high is going to be seventy two or three or four degrees but somewhere there about. Today's Monday. Yeah, today's Monday. What did I say? You said Friday. I'm, I'm sorry. Nice bright uh, Friday yeah. morning. Well, I mean it's uh it'll be Friday before you know it. It will right? be. That's For right. every Monday, there will be a Friday. For every Friday, there must be a Monday. So let's celebrate Monday um, in anticipation go. of the enjoyment that Friday uh, brings us. Hey, we're talking about masculinity, and we're talking a lot about um, social trends and cultural norms and, and abnormalities and, you know, where, where the right answers lie. And, and then I think of the Trump phenomenon. And I think a lot of men were optimistic, or excuse me, I'm supportive of the Trump presidency and, and the administration, because they saw something in him that they were told they couldn't be. A guy who speaks his mind, who tells it like it is, who um, doesn't mince words, doesn't bite his tongue, um, at times shows aggression, um, talks about making money and providing for his family. These things are not, are historically recently have not been uh, very celebrated. Um, but, but the person who has enacted these in a policy format has been Ron DeSantis. I mean, there is no doubt about it. DeSantis has clearly, clearly separated himself from the others um, in, in the world of America Firsters. I mean, I've looked at polling, and we saw a, a CPAC poll. I mean, there's no doubt that Trump is still the big deal. I mean, he's still the 800-pound gorilla, but um, DeSantis but the is in power, and he's using the power of his position. He's governing. To, to address I mean, these He's issues. having to govern yeah. in a very executive um, sort of way. The Florida Department of Health. Uh, per Ron DeSantis, and he announced this, I think, January 7th, or a Surgeon General announced this January 7th, that he's no longer going to officially recommend, uh, and he's actually going to go further than this, he's going to officially recommend against the COVID-19 vaccines for healthy children. Um, now, you can expect, cue the outrage, the American Academy of Pediatrics called the recommendation irresponsible, uh, the Infectious Disease Society of America, uh, putting politics over the health and safety of children. And, of course, White House Press Secretary, Secretary Jen Psaki, um, it's deeply disturbing that there are politicians peddling conspiracy theories out there and casting doubt on vaccinations. I don't think DeSantis has cast a doubt at all about vaccinations. I want to read you a statistic that I think you'll find very interesting. Um, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention reports that there are 66 COVID-19 deaths between the ages of 5 and 11, between the dates of October 3, 2020, October 2, 2021. So 66 5 to 11-year-old children died with COVID, not of COVID, with COVID uh, in a single year, October to October 2020 to 2021. Um, we're talking about suicides a second ago. That is exactly the same number of children between the ages of 5 and 11 that committed suicide. So we're going to mandate vaccines for kids 5 to 11 when as many of those kids died from or with COVID 
as committed suicide. Uh, by comparison, there were 969 deaths in this age group from unintentional injury, 207 from homicide. So 207 kids 5 to 11 were killed in 2019. I've not heard much of, a, of an uproar because Pfizer doesn't make a lot of money when they're combating unintentional deaths or homicides or any of these other um, issues. But it's just unbelievable. And I want to go back to this masculinity argument because I believe this, Rev. I believe that a lot of the data, and I've got some numbers here this morning, um, how much risk do you believe COVID poses to your health and well-being? I mean, if you're a very liberal person, 47% say great risk, even today. I mean, this is a, uh, a poll from last week. So 47% of very liberal Americans say that COVID poses a great deal of risk to your health and well-being. If you're a liberal, it's only about 22%. If you're slightly liberal, it's 18%. If you're slightly conservative, it's only 16%. If you're conservative, it's only 12%. If you're very conservative, interesting number here, is 21%. You know why? The very conservative age overlap over the age of 65. I'm very conservative but I'm over the age of 65. Therefore, I do believe that COVID probably poses a little greater risk to my health and well-being, um, not because I'm afraid of COVID, but I'm a smart man or woman and understanding some of the subsets of, of those at high risk and age has been, uh, I don't know, if we look at risk categories, age has been the predominant influencer and in who has issues or not obesity would be the other Um and then you've got opinions on masking strategies and all this. But but I still believe, I mean, I, when you look at masculinity or the decline in masculinity or the detoxification of masculinity in America, I think look at the mask. Look no further than the mask. Why would a, a 25-year-old man wear a mask? I mean, in all honesty, I mean, unless he's made to, I mean, t- take, take that out of the equation. I get it. I mean, if, if it's mandated, you can't fly on this plane unless you wear this mask. Can't come to this um this retail business if you don't wear the mask. I understand. I mean, you know, they get to make the ground rules. Those who run the airlines have a right to conduct their business as they see fit. And if the guy running the airline says, uh, we don't want people flying on this plane without a mask, but how much has that guy been affected? How much has that lady been affected by this detoxification of masculinity? I think masculinity and the war on masculinity is at the root of a lot of this pandemic response. I think if we were a nation that celebrated masculinity, that accepted masculinity as part of our DNA, um, there would be far fewer Americans wearing masks, and we'd all be just fine. Let's go to the phone. Here's Whitney in Florence. Good morning, Whitney. Good morning, gentlemen. I just wanted to say that I totally disagree with the feminist movement. I have for a long time. I was brought up to respect men. Um, being a Southerner and that Christian background and that military background, there is a difference. Um, people like Hillary and Madeleine Albright that want to say, if you don't vote for a woman, you know, you're doing wrong, you're going to hell. I'd argue the opposite. I do think that with the household changing and sending women off to school with men in that competition, I think a lot of it does come from that. But as a woman, I've never felt like I was a victim. I am glad I have a vote, um, but I do think that that plays a big part, um, and I just implore the men out there to man up and start caring more about, you know, abortion, about the family issues. Don't be afraid to tell your wife about those. Um, 
or your representatives, um, as Breeze would say, <laughs> testicular fortitude would go a long way. And um, that's just how I feel about those things. So thank you guys. Have a good day. Thank you, Whitney. Appreciate the call. Got a lot of females calling in uh, this yeah. morning. And I don't believe the war on masculinity has been conducted by, by rank-and-file women. And I don't mean that derogatorily. I mean, rank-and-file women, rank-and-file men, the average woman or the average man. I don't believe um, that, that the average woman is keenly interested in uh, in the effects or, or the toxic effects or the negative effects of masculinity. I, I don't buy that for a second. This is, as usual, a, a liberal orthodoxy conducted, run, orchestrated by affluent Northeast college-educated liberals. I mean, the, the majority of these... Um, issues that that divide America and create these um, unusual conversations are not driven by by the genders. I think Larry's on to something here about feminism, but but who conducts the majority of feminism in America? Is feminism in the hands of average females? I would argue not. How many women listening to my voice right now consider themselves to be feminist? I mean, I, I am a. I mean, I hope I am. I'm somewhat of a, a masculine male. I mean, I grew up in a town with no stoplight on a farm around a bunch of farmers and business guys and construction workers. Um, language was very colorful. There, there was a lot of um, uh, manliness in, in the way people conducted themselves. And I'm talking about men in particular, the way they conducted him, themselves. Um, women were not offended that men got together on Wednesday night and played cards and drank beer and ate a steak. I mean, that, that was kind of part of my world. Um I look at this, Rev, and, and, and I mean this sincerely. When I was a young kid, and I reflect on this sometimes, you know, um, the, the, the spheres of influence in my life, the, the people that had impact on the way I saw the world and how I conducted myself, um, those people would be thrown out of orderly society today if not imprisoned. I mean, they, they would, I mean, literally, and I mean this sincerely, and, and these are the people whom... Um, kind of built the town I grew from or, or grew up in and and come from and and today's you know woke ideology and woke perspectives they would have been the I, I don't know uh the, the outcast from society there's no way you could have con- conducted yourself today as they did and I've said this before and I think you agree with me when I say this we, we've tried to well I mean it condition to conformity is one thing but but you know when when there are those who won't conform there's a, a willingness to accept, or historically there's been a willingness to accept that the government has taken on the role now of identifying those who, you got this you got this systematic way you try to condition people to conform. And those that won't conform, you got to deal with them. And the way we historically have dealt with them is just let those people be. I mean, they choose to live their lives a little bit differently. You know, the Wyoming's full of them and Montana and some of these, you know, the ranchers and the uh, the cowboys and the uh, those with a kind of a cowboy streak. But, but no, the government seeks those people out now and has a, a kind of a punitive nature of which they they deal with those. I mean, am I, am I wrong? No, I'm, I'm sure I'm not. I mean, it's 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 the nature of government today, the institutions. Um, and this is a it's all about power. It's all about influence. It's all about, you know, who has the power in America today, the private or public sector. And we had a long debate last week about public and private sector. Um, I had two other people tell me, I'm jumping around here. I had two other people tell me over the weekend that indeed the employees of district one got a $500 bonus for aid and assistance at the increase in the price of gas. I mean, I, I don't I don't know what your opinion is of that. I find it a little bit unusual that the public sector 
um, have confiscated enough of the private sector's wealth that when gas goes up X number of dollars, um, it can care for its employees in a way the private sector cannot. Jeff and I had a bit of a tussle last week about, you know, the public and private sector and what's fair and what's unfair and, you know, who's doing what to whom and who needs to take precedent over over whom. I don't think there's a legitimate debate to be had, but but there is. And apparently um, the school district has enough money to give all of its employees. I don't know if it was, um I don't know what, what scale of employee. I don't know if everybody got 500 or if those um, that didn't make as much as others, was it teachers, was it administrators, was it custodial staff? I don't have any idea, but it was um, it was not confirmed to me. But it was told to me by an additional two people over the weekend that indeed um, that is the case, that you know all the employees of District 1 got an extra $500 to help them with the cost or the increased cost of gasoline. Um, you know, it's almost, we're almost forced in the weirdest way imaginable to be pitted against one another. The public sector, the private sector, have almost been forced to be pitted against one another. When you look at, um, well, I'll, I'll give you another example. Student debt. You know, there's been kind of a moratorium on student debt. It's delayed, deferred uh, payments. And um, they're arguing how to keep it going on. And, keep, and there's been forgiveness. And I saw the other day where another 11,000 student debts have been forgiven. I mean, I don't know who has the authority to do that because you and I are the guarantor. I mean, the American taxpayer guarantees about 90% of all student debt. So the student debt is not being paid back because of COVID for the last couple of years. I think we're into a little better than two years of, uh, of deferment of payment on student debts. I mean, who has the authority to make that call? I guess some government agency. And once again, whether you know it or not, you are um, you are the guarantor. Only overnight, about 92% of all student debt is guaranteed by the American taxpayer. So when they forgive a debt, I mean, they're basically saying um, we'll take taxpayer dollars and pay the bill for those who aren't paying uh, the bill themselves. So when a, when a public employee, when a school teacher or a school administrator or a custodial staff, thank you for the job you do. But in all honesty, when you get a $500 bonus, it's not by the profit generated by public education. It's, um, it's the ability the public sector's had to extract that much money from the private sector that they have funds left over to do wonderful things like that. How many businesses... Um, I'm speaking to business owners. How many of you wish you could give a $500 bonus to your employees to help them offset the cost of, of fuel, energy? Um, how many of you do have that much money? It's just bizarre to me how we've gone down this road. And and, and I'll go all the way back to this. You're going to connect dots that are miles and miles and miles apart. The lack of masculinity. But I think masculinity is, and, and toxic masculinity by definition is not some of the um, – some of the altruistic things we talk about, providing and and, and caring and uh, the primacy of work and, uh, you know, defending your family. A, a lot of it is aggression and dominance, to exert dominance and aggression at certain times. And, and I think masculinity should require or should be about dominance and aggression. When the, when the, when the public sector goes over the limit and how much money to extract from the private sector, I think masculinity should be a part of that. I think aggression should be a part of that. I think somebody's got to stand up and say, no, you've got enough of our money. You can't get any more of our money. But, but you know, uh, that sort of attitude, that sort of demeanor, that sort of approach is certainly not um, the way we conduct ourselves today. And, and if indeed that is true, I mean, here's, the, here's the, the, the narrative. And once again, not confirmed but relayed to me twice over the weekend, the point we made Friday is accurate. 
I, I still, I, I, I don't have any way to confirm that other than somebody from the school district saying, yes, that's the case, or a family member of somebody from the school district saying, yes, that is indeed um, the case. But, you know, to, to the issue of student debt or whether or not employees of uh, public education got an extra $500, I mean, it, it really does. It kind of pits us against one another. I wish it weren't that way. But, but at some point in time, the private sector has to show some element of aggression, some element of resistance, and, and up until now, we've not been very willing to do that. And I think that is because the left has been, the liberal left has been very successful in the detoxification of masculinity because that is one of the, I don't know, Rev, the, um, the natural elements of manhood or manliness that says, hell no, you're not getting any more. Um, it even goes back to the animal kingdom, you know, fighting over food. I mean, you've seen some of these YouTube videos where males um, show their dominance at certain times in rare moments. Uh, let's take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. So we started the show this morning talking about the week that was as a Gamecock, right? Mm-hmm. Fire Frank Martin. You think you got Sean Miller, and then you don't, and then the baseball team gets swept by Tennessee. But we're good in women's basketball. So let's all celebrate together being good at women's basketball. That led to this masculinity and femininity and woke and, and transgenderism and all this kind of feeds into this, uh, I don't know, this cultural uh, battle that we're having for the heart and soul of America. I sound like a politician when I say that. Once one, always one, I guess, to some degree. But um, but but I do believe a lot of this, and when it ends up, it kind of morphs or manifests into uh, this argument about, you know, public sector, private sector, and and what do we do? And what is the re- what are the realities of the um, the kerfuffle between the, kerfuffle. The, the public and private sector? Well, what can the private sector do? I, when you hear these things that you know rub you wrong, well, you I think mean, it, might might be wrong. Well, it, it, it elect school board members and city council members and county council members that believe you have a right to keep most of your money. I mean, I, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Here's what I do know. The world changed in 2008 when the world blew up, and they bailed the banks out. I mean, the, bail, the banks knew they had no moral hazard because the banks knew they were too big to fail, and they, they knew the government had the ability to, to print money out of thin air, create money out of thin air, and, and bail the banks out. They, they just kind of knew that was the way that scenario was going to play out. Something similar happened during COVID. Remember one day when I came on the show, and I, I think I told you before the show, I said, Rev, there's $8.9 million, or billion, I'm sorry, $8.9 billion that it's ma- it has made its way into South Carolina of the $8.9 billion COVID relief money that has made its way into South Carolina, $6.3 billion went to the public sector. Remember that? Mm-hmm. $8.9 billion total funds committed to South Carolina, $6.3 billion went to the public sector. For what? 90, about 98 point some odd percent of all public sector salaries were met. I mean, nobody got laid off of the public. That's unfair. About 2%. I mean, somewhere around 2%. And maybe it was contract labor, uh, you know, school teachers and and public works. Employees. I don't, I'm not demeaning these guys. I'm not disparaging anybody who works in the public sector. But something's out of kilter here. I mean, so, something's not, you can't allow this to continue to happen. Um how many government officials have sat behind these two microphones and said, we have more money than we've ever had in the history of our government? The federal government has never had this much money. The state government has never had 
this much money. The local government has never had this much money. The school districts have never had this much money. Where did that money come from? How did the public sector end up so well-funded when the private sector was the ones that had to shut down and navigate the complexities of what happened? I mean, it is bizarre to me. I mean, it's unfair. It's fundamentally unfair for the public sector to benefit by, by friendly relationships and cozy acquaintances within the public sector and the private sector be devastated in the fashion that it was. And you ask, what can we do about it? I don't have any idea. I mean, there's a little bit of me that says that train is too far down the tracks. I don't know how to bring that back to some sense of normalcy, but but we have a, I'll give you an example. It's not like I'm picking on District 1. I'm not. I promise I'm not. I mean, I'm a supporter of the current administration. I just think they made some terrible missteps, and I think we've got to challenge them on some of these things. It doesn't mean I'm against education. It doesn't mean I'm against anybody. Well, I just think some of these things that have happened need to be accounted for. We have to challenge these people in that way, shape, or form. But if but if $8.9 billion were allocated to South Carolina and 6.3 of the 8.9 were allocated to the public sector, somebody needs to explain why they thought that was the best expenditure of funds. Now, now state government will tell you all this money came with strings attached. It had to be spent on education. It had to be spent on employee retention of the public sector. It had to be spent on pension and retirement and health care and all these other sorts of things. So, so really and truly, this is a problem of Washington. But something has to change here. So, and, and Jeff and I had kind of a, um, a back and forth toward the end of last week, and I think there's a fundamental difference in the way Jeff perceives that relationship between the private and public sector. I'm not saying that my way is the only way. Certainly there are contrarian views to have other than the one I do. But if you continue to handicap the private sector, the public sector will not be able. I mean, they'll, they'll spend all this money eventually. I'll give an example, Rev. We went from voting down a referendum, 75-25, the largest tax increase in this county's history. We went from voting that down 75-25, what, three years ago? Yep. To debating whether or not to build um, an aquatic center in one of our local schools. I mean, how do we work that? If we voted down, if the public said no to a tax increase, and the, and the public sector still figured out a way in, in, in District 1 to have enough money to build an aquatic center, how do you square those up? I mean, I can't, and I'm pretty decent at business. I'm not great at it. I'm not terrible at it. I'm pretty decent at it. I, I don't know how to make that model work. You vote down a tax increase. You don't get that money. Some way, somehow, you get enough money to put on the table an aquatic center. That's just a bit bizarre to me. And now, all of a sudden, you've got enough money to give you know employees $500 to help with the cost of gas. How many private sector employees have had their boss lady or man walk out into the, the facility and say, hey, because gas has gotten so expensive, we're going to give you an extra $500. There is a contest. There is a contest for resources between the public and private sector. And right now, the public sector is getting the best of the private sector. And somebody has to understand that the private sector is the engine that generates the production of whatever revenue the government takes in, whether it's federal, whether it's state, whether it's local. Um, I was thinking about this over the weekend. We live in the preeminent superpower on the planet, right? I mean, you and I are blessed to be Americans. That's right. I mean, I love America. I despise the morons that run it, but I love America. <laughs> I mean, I love it with a passion. I know I won the ovarian lottery the day I was born a proud American. Now, once again, I despise the morons that run it. 
But we live in a country. You know what? Our, you know how we fund our government today, Rev? Listen to this. Now, just ch- stick with me for a second, because this is fundamentally what we do. Our Congress appropriates money that they don't have. The Federal Reserve issues debt and, and prints money out of thin air to buy the debt. So the Fed doesn't have the money, but they can print it. The government doesn't have the money. They can't print it. So the government appropriates and spends and votes yes in favor of spending a trillion dollars. They know they don't have the money. The Fed doesn't have the money, but it has the capacity to print the money or create the money. It's fiat currency. It's not printed. We don't have a print press in a basement in a dungeon somewhere at Fort Knox. I mean, that's not the way it is. It's digitally created. It's fiat currency. It's play money. It's out of thin air. Uh, but but that, that's the way we govern today. I mean, imagine that. I mean, it doesn't it, sound very serious it, to it, me. Can, you can't be serious if that's the way we're going to do this. I mean, that, that's the way we fund our government today. The Fed is not an entity of the government. So, so when, when, when the government spends a trillion dollars that it doesn't have, and it does it every year, not six trillion last year, when they have $6 trillion that they don't have, the Fed buys debt, government debt, to pay that bill with money they don't have. But they have the ability to print that money. How do we believe that that's sustainable? And then you add the 780 economists that work at the Fed, 10.41 per uh, 10.41 registered Democrats to every one Republican, the public sector is out of control. I mean, I have no animus to public sector employees. I appreciate the work they do. Uh, I am thankful for the work they do. But, but the public sector and the way it funds um, its operations, uh, it's, it's bizarre to me. I mean, it, it's out of control, completely and totally out of control. Um, Philip and Jay Jordan, Philip Lowe and Jay Jordan were here. Uh, I think Philip had here two Fridays in a row. Jay was here um, last Friday, and they were talking about you know, the, balanced budget amend- the balanced budget amendment. The state government cannot deficit spend. I mean, they can allocate some of the pension and retirement models, and they've done some of that, um, you know, future spending. But, but it, can't, it can't set a budget that exceeds the amount of revenue it has. Now, now, it's been very fortunate that the federal government passed down a lot of money to help them do some pretty cool and wonderful things that they're choosing to do. We're talking about investing in infrastructure and economic development. You can disagree or agree with that, but those are fairly responsible ways to spend some of the proceeds or windfall but, but when you look at the, the public sector and how it functions and operates, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a boondoggle. I mean, it does not make, there is no modeling, that there is no realities within. Um, it gets a big windfall from COVID. COVID hits and shuts down the private sector, right? I mean, that's, that's what happened. COVID shuts down the private sector. And, the government and, shut down the private yeah, the, sector. The, well, you're right. There, there you go. COVID did not shut the private sector. Um, government action, government order, government edict chose to penalize the private sector for things it was not sure about. And I, I get some of that. I mean, I do. I, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, nobody really knows. So, right. you know, let's be real cautious. Let's not. But at some point in time, um, they began printing money. They funded the CARE Act, the CARE 2 Act, the Build Back Better Act. Um, no, it's not Build Back Better. What was the other one? Uh, Build Back Better is the one they didn't get passed. Uh, there was through there was cares one cares two and then the other um you know make america better i don't know uh something like that but it totaled about six trillion dollars and out of that six trillion dollars 
nearly all of it went to the public sector. I mean, the, the PPP plan uh, was dedicated toward the private sector. No question about that. So the, so, uh, so the private sector benefits from the businesses that can't operate because the government says you can't operate, but you can pay your employees to not work. I mean, there's another. It's just it's the, the absurdity of the way we govern ourselves should scare the daylights out of all of us. It doesn't because most of us are too busy watching, you know, women's basketball and, and, and other real important things. Uh, you know, female male swimming, uh, you know, dudes competing in women's swimming events. Uh, right. Moments of silence here and there. Two moments of silence in this case. You know, I was thinking about this earlier. I want to read this again because some of our listeners are just joining us. Um, yeah, and, um, and maybe this is out of respect to uh, breast or testicles. I don't know. But today during the <laughs> women's NCAA tournament, really? ESPN's Carolyn Peck and Courtney Lyle remained silent for two minutes. In opposition at Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill, there are things bigger than basketball. Uh, our LGBTQIA plus teammates at Disney um, asked for our solidarity and support. So not a one moment of silence occasion. That's only Pearl Harbor. That's only 9-11. I mean, this deserves right. two moments of, sell it, of, uh, of silence. And I just wonder, I can't help it, I'm sorry. This is a bit crass. There's got to be some symbolism in here. Two minutes of silence. <laughs> but is, is, it, is it female breast or male testicle? There's got to be. I'm sure of it. There is some symbolism <laughs> because these are incredibly creative people at Disney and ESPN. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the phone. Here's Mel in Florence. Hello, Mel. You're on the air. All right. Good morning, Ken. Good morning. You were all over the place this morning, so I'm trying to decide what exactly I wanted to comment on because you've commented on so many I know. Things. I know. Busy head syndrome is on full display. No, that's okay. Um, most of what I wanted to say was some business about toxic masculinity nonsense. Be the person you are supposed to be. Treat other people decently. That goes across both genders. Work out what works for you, what works for your spouse. My husband and I are both very strong-willed people. We bring different things to our family. We go on our strengths. We respect each other. We each know what works best for us and what we're best at. And it works. Great. Good for us. Here's another thing that would work for the government. Quit spending what you don't have. I handle the finances of my family because that's just what I like to do. I enjoy it. I know I can't spend what we don't have. I know there are consequences if I spend what we don't have. So I don't. My husband and I work together. We look at what we have. We look at what we want, what we can afford. We live within our means. Why can't the government that's supported by all the rest of us who go to work, why can't they do the same thing? Live within your means. And one other thing I had to get on because you said that is a sore spot with me. We paid our student loans. We borrowed money. We went to school. We signed a paper that said that if we borrowed this money, our word means something. And our word said we would pay it back. We paid it back. I think you should pay back if you borrow something, you should pay it back. Even if it's you borrowed money to go to school, you can't pay it back. You work it off somehow, but somehow or another, you pay back what you made a commitment to pay back. Because otherwise, what are we teaching kids to get student loans? That your word means nothing, that if you sign a loan and you say you're going to pay it back, well, you don't really have to. No. You pay it back even if it's through working it out somehow. 
I think it all comes down to being responsible on a personal level and a governmental level. Take some responsibility for your life, for your actions, for what's important to you. And that's it. Thank you. That's a lot. Thank you. Great call. Appreciate your time. Uh, 843-661-0937. We got to take a break. I got a lot to say (laughs) about what she had to say. Back in just a second. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. The lady was right. I've been all over <laughs> the place this morning. Um, You'll change subject five times while she was on hold. Well, I mean, we hadn't had an issue or a central theme of the show this morning to really kind of sink your teeth into and and take it off and go. I mean, we've really um, bobbed and weaved, shall I say. You know what I'm still waiting for you to what talk about? That? Hunter Biden laptop. Yeah, we'll get there. I mean, I've got okay. a plan there. You're working on we'll, that? We'll get there. I've got a plan. Okay. Um, and I promise that there's 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 news about to break oh. in the next several days, I think. That, that'll that be a bit of a, uh, a revelation in that case. Uh, let's go to the phone. Here's David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey. So, Ken, you're telling me the, the big bank bailout has turned into the big blue state government bailout. Uh, and I think about you were talking about basketball, Bobby Crimmins. Remember that? I uh, said yes, and then no. Uh, coaching. Yeah. He said coaching, and uh, no. Sean Miller. Tell you what, man, I'm gonna give Cincinnati, Ohio, credit today. Man, if we had a Montgomery Inn and Skyline Chili, that would solve all our problems. There you go. In Columbia. That's there right. There you go, my man. <laughs> And I was thinking about our buddy Cato yesterday, man. I watched these basketball games and stuff. And I said, man, this, the beauty of Miami versus South Carolina, it was a no-Nike day for mm. those two. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about that. Um, and then I, 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 I kind of overheard the voice of Shaken Dave Aiken. Uh, he was doing I, – I guess he does the, the basketball games. But no Nike day. And – what bothers me, I'm I thinking about this country. We, what do you take? Take the masculinity out. I mean, so let's think about St. Peter's. What are they called? Peacocks. You take it out. There's St. Peter's P. Uh, and you, we, as Gamecocks, we would be just the 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 University of South Carolina game. And when I think of about uh, Putin and Chi. Who saved their butts back in the day? Uh, Japan was kicking China's butt. Germany was kicking the USSR, and they and, and that was Ukraine and Russia together. But there was this thing that we call the sleeping giant. People that were willing to work. They were. I mean, they want. They work at the farm, the factory, storefront, whatever. They believe in a creator, as Jefferson said. What are we today, my man? I call it a woke giant. We're confused about our um, gender on meds, living in a virtual world in mommy's basement, expecting money for nothing. I mean, what would you do if you were those guys? And, And our whole response is just vocabulary and semantics. That's all we have to do. I mean, that's all we're talking about. Uh, y'all stop now. That's what Biden's going to say. Y'all stop now. What what good is that going to do? So we're the sleeping giant. Biden is the sleeping giant. That's it. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. 
six six one oh nine three seven is our number. We got time for another another call? Uh real quickly okay. here. Anne in Darlington have about a minute and a half. Okay, I'm glad you're jumping around because I haven't been able to listen to some of the local politicians. I'm calling to see if there was some kind of update on legislation to protect jobs from vaccine mandates. And I'll get off to listen to the okay. answer. Thank you, Ann. Appreciate that. I'll try to find out more about that. Should have asked when I had them here Friday. Both Jay Jordan and Philip Lowe were here. We're going to try to more regularly schedule those guys to be in here. we got a Senate race this week or next week, next week. Um, and then we'll try to get Mike Rickenbauer in here as well to let them update the constituency. I'd love to do this in Sumter and Orangeburg. I really would. Uh, Sumter's got some big political news coming. Jay Lucas resigned as speaker, said he's not running for re-election. As speaker didn't resign, he's not running for re-election. And, um, I mean, I know a little bit about that world up there. i got to believe that Sumter's Merle Smith is probably in line to become the next speaker of the House. So I'd love to try to get in touch with um Maybe I can do that this week, run Merle down and see if he'll come on and uh, talk about the likelihood or not of him becoming Speaker of the House. Back in a minute. Yeah, I want to be careful here because it can sound like, if I'm not careful, this is all the Democrats' fault. You know, if only the Republicans held office and if only the Republicans had control of government, um, at some point in time, the public sector, the public, uh, what I'm talking talking about, government, in government, government, as I like to say, <laughs> um, at some point in time, two plus is two stopped equaling four. I mean, two plus two equals four. That's not a liberal um, ideology. That's not a conservative ideology. That is a fact. And and in some way, shape, or form, the public sector has tried to convince itself that two plus two could equal five or six or seven or eight or nine. Um, now, now, I do believe that liberals tend to be more sympathetic to government intervention, government inter- intervening in the affairs of the private sector. Um, that's probably a fundamental difference. I think Jeff and I illustrated somewhat of a, um, a disagreement there. I think Jeff was respectful to me, and I try to be respectful to him. Um, but, but his concern was the burden that the private sector was creating that the government was going to have to deal with. My concern is the burden the government is creating that the private sector ultimately is going to have to deal with. There's a yin and yang there. There's kind of a back and forth. Um, There's a reason that business people are suspicious of government. There's a reason that government are suspicious of business people. I would argue that's probably, in a weird way, Rev, a healthy suspicion. But I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. I don't care what uh, political party you pledge allegiance to or political orthodoxies of which you believe um, the, co- the government or country should abide by, that there is no way anybody can defend this sentence. You ready? And we said it a couple of times this morning. The government, Republican and Democrat, are going to spend money today they don't have. They're going to appropriate dollars that they don't have. As they appropriate the dollars, the Federal Reserve is going to create currency out of thin air and buy that government debt. I mean, just kind of say that out loud to yourself. I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. I don't care if you're a Keynesian economist or a a classical economist. How do we believe that that leads to a better outcome? How do we believe that the country can sustain that sort of activity? I mean, two plus two eventually equals four. You can delay it. You can kick the can down the road until it becomes a 55-gallon drum. But at some point in time, a generation to follow pays a significant price for that lack of um, that, that lack of uh, responsibility. I mean, that's what it is. I mean, a responsible government does not spend money it does not have. 
But we, we've kind of, we've made, we've normalized that. I mean, we do it every day. We spend money that we don't have every day. Republican ideals and principles, let's say the military. I mean, I saw over the weekend two or three or four or five um, Republican office holders said, you know, we've got to increase military spending. And I'm like, I'm scratching it like, why? I mean, why in the world would you increase military spending when we spend more today than the other eight or nine or ten countries combined? I mean, but, but it sounds good, and Americans are going, well, I mean, we want to be, you know, we want to make sure we're safe and secure and uh, the citizenry are protected. We, we don't ask for explanations. But, but I go back to that one fundamental sentence. And I think that, that there's travesty in this. There's danger in this. That, that there's a likelihood that we lose a country at some point in time in all of this. We're going to spend, but a Republican and a Democrat will vote today, tomorrow or the next day on a spending bill or some sort of legislation that requires them to spend money we don't have. The action the Fed takes that follows that is to create currency or liquidity and buy that debt. That's just bizarre. And to me. they do it as if there is no consequence. Sure. Well, I mean, they, 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 we're, we're so, they don't know what else to do. I mean, it, imagine Congress meeting this morning and somebody from Congress, imagine Nancy Pelosi at the podium or the well of the, of the house saying, hey, we can't vote for this because we don't have enough money. You know, this, this allocation to Ukraine, this allocation to FEMA, this allocation uh, to Social Security or Medicare. I mean, we, we don't have the money. Therefore, we've got to really get to work. I mean, it, it, we've allowed these people to live in la-la land, two plus two equals four, seven days of the week, 24 hours of the day. And Washington, just, I don't, in, in the weirdest way imaginable, doesn't believe that's reality. They think two plus two can't equal five or six or, or seven or eight. And the Fed has this unlimited capacity to create currency and liquidity. And that's how we govern ourselves. And we don't believe there will be a day of reckoning at some point in time? Really? Let's go to the phone. Sam in Darlington joins us next. Hey, Sam. Hey, hey. Um, thank you for bringing up interesting topics on your program. I, I was going to talk some about the masculinity issue, but um, but what you just talking about, about the on, you know the, the deficit spending and, and financing it by... by uh, paper money um with no backing uh you know this is this is very important and 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 thanks for saying that the military spending is, is something that shouldn't be considered sacred and you know and always raised up uh we're always going to increase military spending and and uh that may be a, a feedback from uh, from sort of a misguided search for masculinity. I mean, I mm. guess military is, is is kind of macho, so we don't we don't want to touch that, you know. And uh, and you know, it's um, but there's a lot of money in the military. I, I think at one time I went back and sort of looked at it. You can divide the federal spending into three equal parts, more or less. Uh, one is uh, military. That's about a third of it, and then the other. I mean, that, that includes, you know, intelligence agencies and all that stuff. And then, um, then the other third would be Social Security, and Medicare, that that kind of thing. And then the other is uh, no, let's see, so, uh, medical medical sort of spending, uh, um, Medicare, Medicaid, I think, and then. Uh, and Social Security, 
Uh, and, and well, darn, I, I better better quit talking until I go back to my numbers. But anyway. well, I mean, we're spending about. I mean, what you're arguing, Sam, is on, on Medicare and Medicaid. I mean, yeah. I call that healthcare expenditures. It's yeah. about a, it's close to a trillion dollars a year. Social yeah. Security close to a trillion dollars a year. Yeah. Military is. I mean, it's approaching a trillion dollars a year. Yeah. And yeah. then deficit. I mean, our service to debt. I mean, if, yeah. if the interest rate yeah, ticks up, right, if they raise yeah. interest rates 175 basis points, like they say they are, we're yeah. going to spend about $700 billion in, in, in interest payments alone. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so we need to, we need to get smarter. Uh, you know, masculinity is, is willing to take risks, but we need to be smart about this thing, uh, thinking we can just, keep on doing that and and it's going to work out because eventually like you say uh reality catches up I, i'll i'll get off and just with that word thank you sam appreciate that and that's you know that's a guy who probably doesn't i mean sam and i are going to drink a cup of coffee here before long we uh emailed he sent me a couple of of articles i like corresponding with our listeners i mean that sincerely i like emailing back and forth and hearing what you have to say um it's interesting. Rev used to send me articles about, have you seen this? And I've always seen those because this is, this is what I do for a living, so to speak. And I've got to be as versed as I possibly can. But it's always interesting to have these interactions with our, with our listeners. Um, and, and I find out that we don't have, we, we express ourselves in disagreeable fashion over the airwaves. Um, but I think Sam, Jeff, and I could probably sit down and find a handful of things we agree on, and even the ones we disagree on, we would find concerning. I mean, maybe Sam wants to fix Medicare in a different way than I do. Maybe Jeff wants to fix Medicaid in a different way than I do. Um, the lack of seriousness is is what concerns me. You know, the, the 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 perpetual election cycle. You know, I'm running in two years. I can't say that. I'm running in four years. I can't say that. I'm running in six years, and I can't say that. That will be our demise. Political expediency. It's not responsible government. I mean, it's just not. Uh, I was thinking about this. If we had a um, a convention of the states and I could get my one thing, I mean, if somebody said, okay, Ken, I mean, you, you're, you're the boss of this uh, movement. You're the guy that gets to decide what is the one issue that we're going to make sure is, um, is addressed via some sort of um, convention of the states and a changing of the Constitution. It would be deficit spending. I mean, as much as I'd love to see term limits, and I think term limits are um, – something we need to seriously consider except you're trying to get the people in power to vote themselves out of office good luck with that especially when we seem to increase the amount of power and influence the federal government has year after year day after day but but i you know deficit spending is something that is going to be our demise i mean there's we 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 can handle crazy presidents we've had crazy presidents before um but math is math is math is math and sooner or later the fact that two plus two equal four will bite us in the, in, the, in the behind. I mean, there is no way around this. There's going to be some consequence to, to spending a trillion dollars a year that we don't have. And to put it in its proper place, a, a trillion seconds ago, Jesus was not on the planet. I mean, just, just kind of stew on that. We've got $30 trillion of debt. We've printed about $4.5 trillion of fiat currency in the past calendar year. I mean, that's four and a half times as many seconds ago as it was when Jesus was born. I mean, just fathom that for a second, guys. 
And nobody in Washington seems to be alarmed. Nobody in Washington seems to be bothered by this reality. Now, now when I dig into the Fed and I find out that 780 economists work for the Fed, 10.41 of those economists are a Democrat, and that's basically saying a Keynesian, or Keynesian economist, that, that kind of shines a brighter light on it for me, and it allows me to understand. I'm not sympathetic. I don't believe in it. But I understand it a little better when, when Keynesian economists are giving advice to the Fed because they ascribe to some of these modern monetary theories and, uh, you know, an activist Fed is not that dangerous because government printing money is the way you avoid recessions and all these other sorts of things. Um, natural economic cycles are essential. Let me say that again. Natural economic cycles are essential. We must have recessions. We must, on rare occasions, have a depression. You've got to have not political reality, but economic reality dominate the political discourse, and, and that's just not the case in America today. We have very, I don't know if they're serious or not, but they behave very unseriously. I mean, I don't know how serious Pelosi is. I don't know how serious um, uh, Chuck Schumer or Mitch McConnell or Donald Trump, for that matter, is, but they govern in a very unserious fashion because if anybody had seriousness as a priority, we wouldn't spend a trillion dollars. Somebody would stand up and embarrass the masses. Somebody of consequence would stand up and say, do we realize what we're doing? Let me back up. Do we realize what we've done? Because we're not borrowing money any longer. Let's confess. Let's put our hands before God in heaven and let's admit that we're not borrowing money. We're simply printing money. We're creating money out of thin air that will never in a million years or a trillion years for that matter have the capacity or ability to pay back. And we call ourselves the preeminent superpower on the planet. And we spend money, appropriate money we don't have, and we go to this, uh, <laughs> this is really a, it's kind of a financial cartel called the, uh, called the Fed. <laughs> I mean, it really is. It's kind of a financial cartel. That may be how I refer to the Fed from now on. Um, it kind of colludes within. I mean, it does what it chooses to do. Um, who in the, I mean, it has the power to create a trillion dollars of new money because it chooses to. Not, not, I mean, it was created by Congress. It's not, I mean, Congress has no oversight over the Fed, but the Fed today, if it chooses to, Rev, can create a trillion dollars of currency out of thin air that affects and, uh, and impacts the economy in, in very inflationary practices. So take the debt out of the equation. Look at what it's done to the purchasing power uh, of, of the working family in America today. I mean, we know about gas and energy. We know about food uh, and Putin and supply. But there's somebody, I mean, the blame game is hysterical. You know, it's Putin's fault. It's the supply chain's fault. It's the greedy oil company's fault. No, you can't create money out of thin air and there not be any economic consequence. Inflation is driven by too much money chasing too few goods. Is Has the supply chain affected the two goods, too few goods? Yeah, to some degree, yes. But the problem is how much liquidity we pumped in into the economy. Let's go to the phone. Here is Mac in Marlboro County. Hi, Mac. Hey, Ken. Uh, just a quick comment. Uh, I hate to be negative, but until we figure out a way to get both of these parties out of power and elect new blood and put term limits in place, this cycle will never change. We're in a rut. Both parties keep voting themselves back in power and voting more money to themselves and putting the American people under the rock. 
And until we figure out a way to get them out of power and change the blood in Washington, this will never change. Thank you, Mac. Appreciate that. See, I would argue that the best way, I think, I think deficit disallowing deficit spending is an enforcement of term limits on its own. In other words, if you've got to go to Washington and all of a sudden you can only spend the amount of money you got coming in, you may not be as ambitious about staying in Washington. It may not be as fun as it once was. <laughs> That's true. You know, no earmarks, no, no, no bringing home the bacon, um, telling people they got to work a little longer before they qualify for Social Security. Tell people that we don't have um, as much Medicaid coverage as we thought we had. Um, the the 65-year-old that is eligible for Medicare all of a sudden has to be 68 or 9 or 70 or 71 years old. Um, maybe people running for office with a burning desire to be Santa Claus would not run for office if they couldn't be Santa Claus. Vote for me and I'll protect your Social Security. Vote for me and I'll protect your Medicare. Vote for me and I'll protect your Medicaid. Vote for me and I'll make damn sure we never cut military spending. All of a sudden, vote for me. Um, and I do what? <laughs> There's a balanced budget amendment. We can't spend more money than we have coming in. I didn't really file to run for this office. <laughs> I don't have any interest in going to Washington if I can't be Santa Claus. What do you mean there's a balanced budget amendment? Whoever imagined that you couldn't spend money you don't have? I'll argue this. If we had a convention of the states and out of that came a balanced budget amendment, half of Congress would announce they're not running for re-election. Maybe two-thirds of Congress would announce they're not running for because re-election. they would actually have to go to Washington and do the people's business responsibly. It would resemble the real world. Well... And the reason they like going to Washington, you got two, you got two Disney worlds. You actually got three. You got Disneyland in California. You got Disney World, the magical kingdom in Florida. And then you've got Washington where reality doesn't exist. Everything is a happy dance. Let's go to the phone. Our next call is Joe in Hartsville. Hi, Joe. Yeah, even if we got an amendment that said a balanced budget, what what makes anybody think they would follow that? <laughs> I mean, we have a law that says they have to have the budget done by April 1st. They haven't done that in who knows how long, and nobody says anything about it. But you have to give the Democrats credit. They, they definitely award their friends this latest budget. They give $200 million to Planned Parenthood, you know, and Supposedly, uh, abortions are going down. Well, 2020, I was looking at their uh, revenues. They they took in something like $1.6 billion and made $67 million in profit. For a nonprofit, that's not bad. But then the government, in their wisdom, turns around and gives them $200 million that goes out in grants and stuff. That's not the payments for Medicare or whatever. That's grants. And it just so happens that Planned Parenthood gives between 30 and $50 million a year to the Democrat Party. So, you know, the teachers' unions, the education's got to have money because these people got to live at their level of living and still give to the Democrats. But yet I get 10,000 requests every day. We're falling behind. The Democrats are out donating us. That's because you're approving budgets that let them do nothing but give money to the Democrats. And they can't win because they don't think like 
a Democrat and act like a Republican. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. I'm kind of excited about not this coming Wednesday, but next Wednesday, I got invited to a, an event uh, for Herschel Walker. What? Yeah, I'm kind of excited about that. I mean, I don't like hanging around with politicians very often, <laughs> and they don't like hanging around with me. But Herschel is uh, the all-time greatest college football player I've ever seen in my life, and now a Senate candidate, a Republican candidate for the state of Georgia. He's actually going to be in Walterboro. Guest host is George Rogers. I think it's got to be interesting to watch George and Herschel interact with one another in a political setting because George will take it a minute. I don't know jack about politics. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but anyway, and, and there, there's a group in Walterboro uh, that have historically, it's a sportsman group, uh, big Second Amendment crowd, um, conservationist sorts of people, um, land management and ownership, and uh, I, I guess the timber industry and wildlife management um, and they're not, th- these people aren't tree huggers, so to speak. They just understand the balance of caring for America, excuse me, caring for God's, um, you know, planet and, and being good, productive citizens. But, um, but they're, they're having an event. Um, George Rogers is the special guest, but it's to, um, to support Herschel Walker in his, um, campaign for Congress, excuse me, campaign for the Senate in the, uh, in the state of Georgia, he's killing it in the primary. I mean, he's so far ahead in the primary uh, but he's having some issues in the general. It'll be interesting because Herschel is an African-American Republican. And if the African-Americans in the metropolitan Atlanta area vote for an African-American Republican, there's no way he loses. Uh, but he's just not. He's going to get rural America, or excuse me, rural Georgia, which is rural America. He's going to get all the Georgia Bulldog fans. You, you got to believe Georgia Tech is a bit like the Switzerland uh, bobsled team. Who's mad with them? I mean, who hates Georgia Tech football, right? I mean, there was a day in Bobby Dodd, and I think Bobby Ross might have coached at Georgia Tech for a little while. Um, Georgia Tech split a national championship uh, in my lifetime. They split a national championship. But um, but I don't know anybody that despises Georgia Tech football, so um, they probably won't be as uh, invested in this election. But I, I'm telling you, Herschel talks like a guy from the country and even kind of a um a simpleton articulation of some of the complexities of the political world, but I like what the guy has to say. I mean, I, I you know I've listened to him several times. Hannity's had him yeah, a couple was, of times he was on an his show. Advocate, I thought for Donald Trump. No, no question about it. No, no question about it. And he's still such a um a freakish sort of um human specimen, so to speak. Um, Herschel's what sixty one or two maybe three, and he looks like he could play professional football today. Um, but he has a very um, ah, southern delivery and and kind of a simple way of looking at things. It's very like, it's a little bit like, I don't know if you saw this or not. There, there was something that came out last week about Trump's vocabulary and how limited and elementary it sounded. Um, I mean, Trump's an Ivy Leaguer. I mean, he went to UPenn, went to Wharton School of Finance, I mean, he's a highly educated man, um, and, and it's interesting in America today. We we often equate intelligence with vocabulary, and we equate intelligence with um, you know, the way you speak. And I, I just for the you know, if you listen to Walker Long, I mean, I know this is coming from the New York Times. He doesn't appear to have command of the issues. Well, he doesn't hear, appear to have command of the issues because he talks like a you know a, a Southern guy from Georgia. 
with, with a very rural dialect. I mean, I can relate to that. Um, like like a regular person. Well, I mean, like like a regular person who's, I would imagine, plenty smart. You know, um, and, his, and some of his financial filings have said he has a net worth somewhere between 10 and $25 million. Um, now, Herschel's big and fast, and he got paid a lot of money for being for being big and fast, but I'm hardly ever excited about going to um, going to a political event. But on um, Wednesday, March 30th in Walterboro, I'm pretty excited about that. I'm going with a couple of buddies here from this area. Oh, who that's want, cool. I mean, who want to do the same thing I'm doing, that is support Herschel Walker in his um, in his candidacy for Senate in, the, um, in our neighboring state of Georgia. Remember what Trump said? How do you win Alabama as big as I won Alabama and win, and win South Carolina as big as I won South Carolina and won and, and didn't win Georgia? Uh, you know, by a whisker. By yeah, he lost by, by a whisker. <laughs> by a whisker. He said. And then he famously said, and he said this like three times on our, on our interview, he said, they cheat like hell. The Democrats <laughs> cheat like hell. <laughs> and I would imagine um, that kind of speak is very accepted in South Carolina, Alabama, and Georgia as well. Let's go to the phone. Tony in Calhoun County listening to WTQS. Hey, Tony. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, if you get a chance to talk to Herschel Walker privately, you might want to let him know that uh, he shouldn't be like Hank Johnson and think that islands capsize. <laughs> good deal, good deal. I'll remind him of that. He's made some faux pas on the can on uh, campaign stroke, but he's not a polished politician. Is Tony still there? Okay, Tony's gone. I mean, he, Herschel's never profess to have a grasp of. Let me ask our listeners this. This is important to me. How important is it? For a politician today to know the historical nature of what came before them. I mean, should a politician asking you to vote for them as a candidate for Senate know the Declaration of Independence or just know the concept? Should he know the Constitution or know the concept? The Bill of Rights or the concept? Um, some of the founding principles, some of the um, uh, so some of the paramount moments in American history uh, are the concept. Uh, the concept's good enough with me. I mean, I understand if you're a history major or a history professor, when Kaufman and Bolt come in on Tuesdays, those guys have, I mean, their career is to be able to recount history. I mean, you expect those to, or those two men to know more than the average would, but, but Walker's made a couple of um, uh, misstatements, um, things that just, just leave you scratching your head like, is that the kind of guy you want in, 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 in the Senate? But I want to ask you this, Rev. Would you rather your senator know every treaty that's ever been signed or, or, or be relatable to the American family of four? Second choice. Yeah, and, it, and that's kind of the point <laughs> I'm trying to make. You know, Walker's going to make some mistakes about recounting history accurately, and he'll get laughed at. I mean, the New York Times will write an article talking about his political illiteracy and his historical illiteracy, and that's not the guy. I mean, he's big and fast and famous. He's a football icon. That's the only reason he has a chance to win in Georgia. I find him to be unbelievably relatable when he says uh, about China, they cheat and tariffs may be the only answer. When he says things about Ukraine and Russia, when he says things about the price of gas, when he, I mean, I just think Americans are look, we're tired of history professors and teachers. We're, we're tired of um, foreign policy experts. We want real people in political office, but, but maybe that's a bit subconscious. I don't know if we've landed there ourselves yet. Um, all of a sudden, you're interested in supporting Herschel Walker as a Senate candidate. Why? He doesn't know enough about the Declaration of Independence. I mean, he doesn't know where the Constitution was signed. He doesn't know any of the amendments. No, but the guy lives in the real world, and he seems to understand those of us who live in the real world. That is a precious quality in American politics today. Let's go to the phone. Here's Jim in Florence. Good morning, Jim. 
Hey, good morning. So I, I bet what Herschel Walker does know about is watching your your mama and your daddy uh, eat beans and rice so you can have a better life. And uh, I would much rather have somebody up there fighting for me that knows about that than, than has some intellectual uh, understanding of of history or whatever. But, hey, Ken, so to the – to the transgender athlete, how many of those – you don't go play or you don't go swim um, in college swimming athletics and having grown up swimming in the city pool. So, obviously, these girls that are swimming uh, for uh, Texas uh, University or I think one of them went to Virginia, mm-hmm. um, obviously these girls are coming from uh, uh, affluent upbringings. And it's hard for me to feel bad for them, knowing that, knowing good and well they voted for Joe Biden, knowing good and well their parents voted for Joe Biden, and that they've played in this entire system. They've never fought it. Uh, at no point did no girl stand up there and not swim in defiance of, of what was going on. And, and so it's hard to defend them. I, I, I don't agree with the, the letting the, the man swim and the women's uh meet but at what point are they going to stand up and uh, and i've said it before it appears that they're they're eating you know the feminist movement the, the woke movement tends to eat its own every once in a while and this just appears to be that um now one other point though you had a call about uh student loans i think we're lazy when we argue oh student loans should be paid off you no know, no matter what or we're being lazy when we say abolish student loans and forgive all student loans uh, when there, there are fundamental arguments on both sides uh, in regards to student loans, especially when it comes to uh, interest rates, how they're compounded and everything else. And it really has been predatory towards young people. These student loans have, so we can't be lazy in our arguments when we just blanket state they should just be completely paid thank you ken thank you jim it's a complex argument we may delve into that tomorrow jim makes very valid points on both sides of the student loan debate um it's a little bit like you know the 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 banks allowed someone making 40 grand a year to buy a half million dollar home i mean there's a lot of moral hazard to go around there i want to go back real quick to what he said if i were president of the university of south carolina and we had a swim team that was invited to the ncaa swim meet i would decline I mean, you know, and, and I'm a good old boy, and I accept that I'm a good old boy. Maybe we need more college presidents who are good old boys, but I'd say my girl are not going to swim against their guy. So we decline. We just don't accept the invitation. To go. Somebody's got to have a little bit of courage and fortitude and stand up against this. Now, I, that's probably me and my toxic masculinity in play, <laughs> but, but that's what I would do. I mean, I would refuse to allow my girls, and I'm talking about the University of South Carolina swim team, to get destroyed by – a, a male swimmer because he has such a competitive and um and muscular uh advantage but but you know the the student loan i mean jim's on to something there it is, it is far more complicated and it has been predatory um i've got some answers and we've had discussions um the university skin of the game i mean that, that's that's a good start point the university must have something to lose when the student debt or then the student debt is not paid back back in a minute Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Got trivia on the way in just a couple of minutes. Right now, someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Earl in Bennettsville. Hello, Earl. You're on. Good morning, sir. Good morning. The the concept 
of the Constitution and the concept of the Declaration of Independence is much more important than each historical word that's written there. Give me a man who knows right from wrong. Give me a man who knows the values that this country was founded on. And that strikes back at the masculinity argument. If the fathers of this country did not have the fortitude that it took to stand up against a nation that was much stronger, then we, sir, would still bow to the queen. I hope y'all have a good day. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. And I guess that's that's Herschel Walker, the candidate. I mean, there, there are going to be far more educated candidates than Herschel Walker. There, there are going to be a lot of guys that can quote, you know, the Declaration of Independence verbatim or, or break down the Constitution, the preamble, and some of these some of these others. Um, but but Walker seems to embody what America really represents and, and is. Now, now, Herschel had the luxury of being unbelievably big and fast. I mean, let, let's not dismiss that. You know, what is Herschel Walker if he's not as big and fast? I mean, Walker was the first, what I'll call, quote, unquote, um, freakish athlete I'd ever seen. I mean, really and truly. I mean, we talk about LeBron James. We talk about Jadavion Clowney. We talk about a lot of these. Herschel Walker was the first really big guy, 225 pounds, that could outrun everybody. But, but Herschel, since then, has embodied some of the principles and values and understands uh, the concept of what it means to be an American, what our responsibilities are, what our, our principles and values, what we're dedicated to are. Um, and to me, that's plenty good. I mean, it really is. Now, now, Walker became a celebrity. Why? And his name ID is off the charts in Georgia. Why? Because he was big and fast. And I think we need to remember that. But I think Walker has really lived a life in concert with the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. Um, he's always demonstrated a level of humility that I find very um, appreciative. Herschel's been a little bit different, and then he's had some issues with depression, and um, and I'm sure that'll be on the campaign trail. Um, they'll leave Walker alone until they think he can win, and once they believe he can win, they'll 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 pull on put on full display some of his inequities, some of the issues he's had over the years. Um, and I think it's, I mean, in, amongst fans, it's public knowledge that Her- Herschel has struggled with depression and, and mental illness. Um, does that disqualify from you being a member of the Senate? I've said before, and, I, and I'll say this a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I probably mean it more than I admit I do. I want people in Congress who have had wheels on their homes. I want people in the Senate who have been a month or two behind on their, on their house payment. I want some college dropouts. I mean, I don't want to, I, I just, I, I'm tired of having somebody propose themselves to be pristine and perfect when I know they aren't. Checking the box candidates. We're governed by and large by checking the box candidates. Uh, where did you go to school? What sorority were you a member of? What judge did you clerk for? Surely you paged at the state house. What did you go to, um, did you go to summer camp or not? Have you read Atlas Shrugged or not? I mean, there, there are certain prerequisites that we require for public service, and I think what you get is kind of uniformity of candidates. Everybody's about the same, and we're not a country where everybody is about the same, and I think the more Herschel Walkers we have in the U.S. Senate, I think the better off America is in general because mm-hmm. I think he understands, Heck to the yeah. caller's point, 
the concept of being an American. And I think Herschel would be the first to tell you, I'm here today because God made me big and fast. I've tried to not abuse those privileges. I've tried to celebrate those privileges by, you know, making money as an athlete, giving back to my community, to my to my fellow man. But now I want to make a difference in the Senate. And I'll tell you, Rev, I've heard him say a couple of things, and um, and uh, ten minutes on the on the radio, and you'll scratch your head once or twice. You'll say, ah, that probably isn't the way that should have been said. But but he's so real and, and authentic. And, and I just think that's the kind of people we need. Uh, rep- we, we've got enough. I mean, forgive this. Kind of like with Donald Trump. <laughs> well, we've got enough smart people. I mean, these people that profess to have an higher IQ than everybody and that they're better educated than everybody. How's that working out for us? So let's find some people who have lived where the rubber hits the road. Let's find some people who have dealt with complications and issues in their life. Let, let's get a government that's reflective of the, the general public. We don't have that today. I mean, we have people who have prepared the majority of their adult life to be a congressman or woman, to be a senator, to, to be an administrator within the White House. And it just doesn't work. I mean, we lack authenticity. We lack relatability. And I think Herschel would be the classic example of someone we need in our nation's government. Back in a minute. Pepsi of Florence takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia question. Six-pack of Pepsi product couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts on the line. We told sports and football a second ago, but this is basketball season. March Madness is great. I love it. Friday, we asked the last undefeated team to win a national championship. Somebody said the 75-76 Indiana Hoosiers, which was right. Here's my question today. You ready? There was a team that went undefeated in 63-64, 66-67, Who was that and who were they coached by? What basketball team went undefeated prior to 1975 and who was their coach? In 63 and 64, they went 30-0. and In 66 and 7, they went 30-0. and In 71 and 2, they went 30-0. and In 72 and 3, they went 30-0. and That's stupid. <laughs> who was the team... And who was their coach? Hi, you're on the air. Do you know the answer? UCLA, John Wooden. UCLA Bruins, Coach John Wooden. Who is this and where are you calling from? Aubrey Montrose. Okay, Aubrey, thank you for calling. Thank you for listening. Hang on just a second. We'll be off there in less than a minute, and the ref can get all your information. Yeah, John Wooden. Now, he had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bill Walton, which kind of helped things uh, during that run. But that is an absurd run in any sport and uh, and probably the greatest run in the history of any College athletics. I mean, I would imagine it, there, there may be some professional teams have done similar things to that, though. 30 and 0, four years 63 64, 66 and 7, 72 and uh, 1 and 2, and 72 and 3. Thanks to Pepsi of Florence. We gathered with them um, Friday talking about some things. They have been very, very gracious to us, and we certainly appreciate it. Enjoy your day.